to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are part of the podcast and sites of the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, career touchstones, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on The Film Journey, a monumental valley-based journey as we return to try to take a second crack at the later work of epic filmmaker John Ford. Uh, Howdy, everyone. Uh, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we'd like to welcome you to a special anniversary episode of the Directors Club. This is the 150th episode that we can't claim credit for because we're uh, relatively new. But uh, shout out to our fearless leader and founder, Jim Lichkowski, who, along with Patrick Ripple, have set the template for what we're doing now with uh, six years of great content. And we are proud to be carrying on that tradition. Jim and Patrick have put together such a vast body of work looking at directors from all sorts of the spectrum. And the concept is magnificent. Me, I'm very grateful that I and Brad can go and continue on this idea and move it forward through directors from all sides of the cinema spectrum. We are now going to, we are looking at the work of director whose films have been regarded as the ultimate of classic Hollywood. Our efforts to look at this film scope are once again joined by Peter Richards, the co-organizer of the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group, of which we are, of me and Brad are both members, and who has, in addition, had taken on the Terrence Malick podcast, and as you may have heard from John Ford Part One, is the noted Victor McLaughlin enthusiast. <laughs> so, uh, welcome once again, Peter, to take a look at um, Ford's work. Yeah, I, uh, thanks, guys. It's an honor to be back here, and uh, if I'm a classic McLaughlin, then that's good by me. <laughs> In our first episode of Ford, us three explored Ford's biography, his early history, including his stint as an actor, and his epic silent works, such as The Iron Horse, and led to some legendary films in their own rights, from Stagecoach to Grapes of Wrath to My Darling Clementine to How Green Was My Valley. And just to reiterate, uh, a couple of the things that were constants that uh, we were looking at in part one, I think we were all pretty impressed just by the visual filmmaking, the framing, everything we, we saw on screen. And also just some fascinating themes from kind of his own personal touches that dealt with his love of the fa- of family uh, to his own Irish heritage to adoration of the military, along with the way he utilizes comic relief. And I think what's going to end up coming to the fore a lot in this discussion is kind of John Ford as a, a chronicler of American history. And a guy who asked the question, what does it mean to be an American? I wouldn't put it quite as a chronicle, but he 
filters American history through a, a very considerable amount of sentiment. And across the films we're going to be talking today, you get to see how the sentiment is used through a growing sense of social consciousness. There's an absolute evolution to the films we'll be talking about today. And what's interesting and maybe troubling is how much they still relate to our modern times in a lot of ways. Right, because, yep. because we're, as you mentioned, not just dealing with history, but dealing with the American mythology and how Americans see themselves. And we see this, this growth from John Ford, who was there at the beginning of film history, whose uh, early silent films in the teens, and how his attitudes evolved, particularly when it comes to issues of race, issues of uh, treatment of Native Americans in the Western. And it's interesting because certainly looking at him from a 2018 point of view, he's no progressive. We're going to see a lot of things that seem that, that are offensive are maybe ideas about racial equality that were once considered liberal, but would not be anymore. But what's going to be interesting is how he's struggling with that as a man of his time. So we begin this part of the filmography with the first film in John Ford's Cavalry Trilogy, 1948's Fort Apache, which starts off with Henry Fonda's stern and inflexible Lieutenant Colonel Thursday arriving at the title fort with his daughter, played by a now-grown-up Shirley Temple. Thursday's strict ways put him into conflict with John Wayne, as the respected captain whose experience with warring Indian tribes may soon be needed. The first thing that came across for me when I saw this movie is that this is John Ford's Ocean's uh, Eleven type because almost every star, big and small, who had manifested himself from uh, his long career up to this point managed to kind of appear in this movie, including two titans of John Wayne and Henry Fonda. But kind of strangely cast, because I think if you were to uh, cast the actors according to their stereotypes, John Wayne would be the guy who was the uh, the rough and uh, strict superior, and then Henry Fonda, who usually uh, has such a sense of justice in his roles, would uh, be speaking out uh, on behalf of what's right, but... Uh, in, in a really interesting subversion, they give Fonda the more uh, meaty and uh, somewhat uh, nastier role. That's a, that's a really cool point. It kind of it reminds me of the film Neighbors, where they uh, where it had Aykroyd and Belushi, but Belushi was the uptight one, and then Aykroyd was the wild, crazy guy. <laughs> 
I think it worked really wonderfully. Um, it was a little surprising to see over the work that I've seen so far from Ford to see how much of a subordinate role Wayne does in, in these films. I think he's very effective here and especially Fonda is just great as the, as the guy going into this fort that he definitely feels is a diminishment of his, of his reputation. The, the casting you're talking about is really one of the strengths of the film to me. Henry Fonda in this film was, I think, one of the best performances of the films we've seen for Ford. Um, he's holding something back here, and it really just drew me to him. I wanted to know what was going on with him. And it's just a magnetic presence because he doesn't show you too much, and his actions are reprehensible and surprising in places. And... For a character I didn't like, I was really invested in him. In part one, we talked about uh, they were expendable, a uh, kind of love letter to the uh, military in World War II. And for the first time, we're seeing Ford question the military, look at the leadership, look at the, the decision-making process uh, much more in an askewed way. And Henry Fonda, you're, you're right, Peter, is, is just perfect in allowing Ford to both revel in the um, stature and prestigeure of, of military behavior and, and military custom while showing that if you are too rigid, if you stick too closely to the rules at uh, the rules and orders at all cost it could lead to disaster he's a prototypical kind of version of the multifaceted characterization done so magnificently by george c scott in Patton. Mm -hmm. he he wants the regiment at the camp to look their best to be in the proper uniform to follow these incredibly strict regulations of how to behave and how to dress but he, may, he explicitly says, well, I'm no dandy. I'm doing this so we can get a top flight group here at this base. But tied into that is these ambitions that have been thwarted and the desire to go and attain a stature that he feels is be, he's being diminished by, by going to this fort. You, and Brad, you mentioned you jumped back to um, they were expendable. And I think one of the maybe the most interesting things about that film is that it was made at the end of World War II or near the end of World War II. And that film is all about the sacrifice of soldiers in the beginning of the war. And it was so interesting to me that Ford made that film when he did at a time of approaching celebration and victory over a true threat to the world, that he isn't celebrating that, but rather honoring the sacrifice. And I think here, like you have a similar approach in that there are two conflicting ideas and that he does honor what the military is required to do, but the ceremony is a veneer or often a veneer for a very ugly truth, which comes out at the end, but is yet, as far as the public knows, buried under the um, the myth-making of the f related to the Fonda character. And it's such an interesting contradiction that he's willing to recognize the necessity of the military, but also call out the way they, the, tr the way the truth can be covered up. And that truth is ugly. Right. And we're going to get into some spoilers about this film because, uh, those who, uh, 
grew up on old westerns might expect it to have a different point of view than it actually does because the events of the film are are loosely based on uh, Custer's last stand. Ford, in a move that would have been seen as revolutionary at the time, takes the Native American point of view. He says outright that the cavalry here is wrong. This is a battle that didn't need to happen. There was uh, Wayne's character and the Indian chief Cochise had a deal that could have led to peace, but uh, Fonda's obstinance leads them to war and to a complete massacre. The point of view here is so different than anyone in 1948 might have expected to see. Yeah, this was, I was so surprised, pleasantly surprised at how the Native American characters are presented here. And it's something that's going to zigzag throughout the rest of the films we watch. This is a big step forward and there are some steps back ahead of us. But the way they're treated here is they are absolutely the reasonable, peaceful characters in this film. Henry Fonda is a glory-seeking madman in a lot of ways. And the will, the fact that he's willing to call that out to me is very interesting. And I should say, too, that John Wayne plays off what Fonda is doing very well as, um, you know, as you said, Brad, playing the, maybe the more typical Fonda role of the of the man who knows what's right, the moral compass of the movie. And they their interactions are so striking. And the end of this film hits so hard, I think, because um, when you see the Fonda's character has failed, he's died, and now he's being held up as a hero. And and the Wayne character buys into that or is forced to at least present that myth in order for the mission to continue, the mission of the military to continue. So you have this like man who's going to have a statue one day, and then you presented with well, this is built on sand, really. This is a really, this was an ugly man who did ugly things, and we made him into a hero. And it's really interesting that Ford reveals this theme so soon because he's going to develop it in a film we're going to be talking about later on in the podcast, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, with the, the phrase, print the legend. And really, Fort Apache seems to be the birthplace of that idea, because after Fonda and the leadership is killed and Wayne has to explain what happened, he has to present, and everyone expects him to present, Fonda as this glorious hero, even though we've watched throughout the movie that he is not. Uh, he he does brave actions for complex and misguided reasons. You can't uh, unambiguously say that his actions are heroic, but he has a sense of duty that he follow, that he follows through. But it's just that the sense of duty has been twisted, partially due to the presence of his daughter on the base too, uh, Shirley Temple. Uh, who is not the Shirley Temple most folks remember as a little child is now a you know twenty year old uh, young woman and uh, involved uh, in a romance with uh, one of the soldiers on the base. Uh, the romance might be a bit of a weak link in 
the film itself, but it is important in providing sources of frustration for Henry Fonda's character and helping us kind of understand why he feels that things at the, ba- the at the fort are kind of getting out of his control. Well, and it underscores his ego as well, because mm-hmm. I think his, one of his primary objections to the man who's courting his daughter is that he's not of the correct class. Right. And he sees himself, as you said, Al, as not really belonging at this fort, and it's just a temporary sidetrack to his career, which had been ascendant. And now, like, that underscores kind of the ugliness of his personality in that he's going to do what he has to do to get away from these lower class folks and get his daughter away from these lower class folks. Um, And it's always been a theme of Ford's in the movie we talked about that he's on the side of the underdog. He's willing to call out that class, that class kind of warfare, class consciousness that's going on in this movie. And he's on the side of the people Fonda, the discussed Fonda in this movie. I think you're really onto something, Peter, especially on how Fonda has the ultimate uh, class snob-based example of Dante's from Clerks and that he really doesn't want to be at this base today or at any other day. And I really like his performance and how his character is written because he has so many levels besides that. It was a really amazing scene halfway through where he sees a person whose job it is is to sell goods to the Indians on the reservation who proves himself to be an opportunistic scumbag who's been giving them in, uh, inferior liquor, though not inferior enough for some people, <laughs> um, among other things. And he is a reprehensible bastard, and Wayne, is, uh, who is accompanying Fonda, is uh, rightfully angry and wants ill for him, but Fonda feels that he also hates him. But since he is a, a representative of the U.S. government, he feels he has to go and support him. And I think that's just a really, that's a really interesting touch on, on his character. And how there's a dance at the three quarters mark, which I think someone explicitly says, you know, the best dances are the non-commissioned officer dances. <laughs> and Fonda has to go. And as part of this initial ritual of doing a procession, Fonda's character has to walk hand in hand with the mother of the character who wanted to date his daughter and he is does a perfect level of awkwardness a stiffness and then when it gets to a dance sequence it's wonderfully delivered because as Shirley Temple is dancing she's totally enthusiastic but when he is dancing he's dancing very well but it's clear it's a complete formality that he knows he needs to dance for x amount of minutes Right, Henry Fonda dances in character because we noted yes. about how he danced uh, awkwardly and uh, to to his, to one effect in in My Darling Clementine, and here he is dancing in a quite a different way. Mm-hmm. And I also really like how it is uh, Ocean's Eleven out of or maybe a Reservoir Dogs like set of competing different personalities. We we brought up a while back about the idea of like these four quadrant movies or movies that do different elements to try to appeal to as many people as possible. I, I think Fort Apache does that, but it does this in an interwoven, more complicated way uh, that I found really interesting. 
like there's an old compatriot of his who is stationed at the base, which is hinted and but not said that he did something that sent him to this godforsaken location. And Fonda greets him by like immediately demoting him. <laughs> and there's a really interesting line about how he also wants out, but will he get the transfer in time? And then the relationship between Shirley Temple and and John Agar playing what looks like uh, early Greg Kinnear <laughs> in this movie is also really fascinating because he just graduated West Point. So he is a higher in military stature. He's lower in social stature than what Fonda would like, but he's higher in stature than his dad <laughs> who, run the, who runs more of the daily operations of the base, played by Ward Bond. Mm -hmm. And so that's an interesting multi-generational dynamic at play. And then when you want um, a comic presence that will bust through the saloon door like Kool-Aid Man, then uh, Victor McLaughlin comes in as the showing, I believe, the ultimate example of how not to teach people to ride horses. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, another theme we'll see in these movies are some less than successful comic bits, <laughs> often featuring my man, Victor. Um, <laughs> this uh, is one of them. There's, there's a long, like, horse riding scene or training scene that uh, is just not good i will we'll, didn't enjoy the damage you did to that punch ball <laughs> no no so i mean it's just, mclaughlin is brought in to do one thing and he does it right it's just it doesn't really work all that well so it's not his fault it's just the balance of the movie i actually like the balance in the sense that it was delivered in in a nice in a nice proportioned way and Ford's usual level of visual craftsmanship is very uh, evident here. There's a lot of fun can be had from looking at just how both the interiors of this base is being used, and then when they need to go and chase after the rogue Indian parties, um, how Monument Valley just opens opens that up, makes it a little more like a desolate. Uh, Trek than uh, uh, than maybe even in earlier Ford ones, and I want to highlight two really amazing uh, visual sequences. One of which is the dance procession. It starts with Bufanda and the the love interest's mother character walking by twos, but then as the procession goes on, there it becomes four people moving at a time, and then eight, and it becomes like just almost like becomes a march, and so. It's a really cool visual motif of like this, this increasing regiment uh, of behavior. And an epic moment at the end, an Apaches come in uh, to threaten the soldiers out in the wasteland, and, and one of them just throws a spear. And as the spear comes in, a big dust storm arrives. And when the dust storm clears, all the Apaches have disappeared. It's a just wonderfully haunting visual moment. And that leads to uh, another really unique way of, of showing the battle at the end, which is is the massacre of uh, the generals, including Henry Fonda. You basically see them huddled because they've sent uh, the reinforcements back. And so the generals are, are huddled, and they are so outnumbered. And as the Apache uh, make their attack... We don't see them at all. They take up the entire screen, and then when they pass, all that's left are the bodies. Right. It's just just us. All their efforts just mount to just this small dimple in the earth of of of, dev of devastation. And how it gets to that point, 
ends with a really great dynamic between Wayne's approach towards the Indians and Fonda's character because Wayne risks his own life to try and rescue Fonda and he's successful at rescuing him only so Fonda can get his saber and go in the middle where all the generals to face a, a certain uh, uh, destruction. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic and I think it's clear that at at this stage of his career, uh, Fort isn't over World War II yet, right? Mm-hmm. He he's the loss and the brutality and the death is certainly hangs over this film. And I think one other interesting psychological aspect of this is I mentioned uh, in the first podcast uh, the Mark Harris's book Five came back, and Ford is definitely um, he's definitely a glory seeker in some ways. And I wonder how much of this film is him kind of interrogating that own part of his personality and mixing it in with the, the death and everything that surrounds it. I, I just found this very psychologically rich from that perspective. Yes. Oh, my God. That's so true. The Gloria has that multifaceted examination by Fonda. And how he approaches things is how different about how his former partner approaches things of how Wayne approaches things, with which, by the end, how Wayne realizes that there is a overlying mission and the truth and decency must sometimes be pushed aside. And how you deal with that is one uh, really nicely developed. So, yes, very much I felt that he's exploring the idea about what the glory of war or potential glory of war as i would say in the procession sequence and then the devastation of the results of following the path of glory so to speak in the uh, apache attack that concludes the film wayne is a changed person at the end of the film but the next movie we're going to be talking about shows a fascinating new facet to the kind of persona of john wayne in she wore a yellow ribbon in 1949. The second installment of the Cavalry Trilogy, it stars Wayne as the soon-to-be-retiring Cavalry Captain Nathan Brittles. With orders pointing towards war if nearby Indian tribes, Brittles must keep his troops at the ready despite two of his officers being distracted by a love triangle. So I want to begin the discussion on this film with one of my favorite anecdotes uh, about uh, John Ford and and John Wayne, and it actually involves a movie made by Howard Hawks. In 1948, Red River came out, a magnificent uh, Western in which Wayne played a very flawed anti-hero. He gave a powerhouse performance And John Ford, when he saw this, uh, apparently said to Howard Hawks, well, I didn't know the big son of a bitch could act. (laughs) Because Wayne had been basically this persona up until then. But with Red River, he, he really comes forward as an actor. And 
Ford took full advantage of this by casting him uh, as a character 20 years his senior. John Wayne was about 40 at this point, and uh, his character is in his 60s, about to retire. And we'll see a lot of great John Wayne performances throughout these films, but they often involve his intensity and disturbing aspects to his characterization. But here he gives, I think, what what may be his most touching performance as a man whose career is about to end and who isn't quite ready for it to end. I I would agree. The big son of a bitch can act, but... I'm not sure. I don't think that means he should <laughs> in this role. Um, we saw in the in the first batch of films we watched where he was horribly miscast in a, a film called The Long Voyage Home, which, in my opinion, sunk the film. Here he's good, and he tempers his screen presence for the role, but he still looks out of place because he's playing a man who's retiring and at the end of his career. But Wayne just has an inherent vitality at this point in his career that I noticed the casting. And I think the film would have been stronger, even though he's good in the role, the film would have been stronger if that role had been cast otherwise. I have to defer there because I don't think he's just good. I think he's great. I never thought that a John Wayne performance could make me well up in, in, in a sentimental moment. But uh, that happens here. There are, There's a scene where he's addressing his troops on the eve of his retirement that I thought was just very moving. Uh, and then when he meets with his counterpart in the Indian tribe to talk about, well, we old guys, we want peace, but apparently the... the powers that be are going to have the young men fight this war. There's depth in those scenes, uh, which I could also add the scenes where he visits uh, his wife's grave. Not only is he delivering what, what I think is, is a magnificent performance, but and I, and I guess here's where we disagree, I actually bought him as a man of that age. I felt like he was believable as a 60-year-old in the way he portrayed uh, this character. Yeah, see, I, 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 I think his performance is good. I don't disagree with you. I just think this movie is about demonstrating his range of an, as an actor while that simultaneously detracts from the story. Because I did notice, I was surprised at how well he did, but I shouldn't be thinking about that when watching this film, I should be thinking about the character, about the the even the moments you mentioned. I should be thinking about the depth of that they're going for there. And it just this stage in his career, he's just not there yet. I think it bodes well for later in his career. And I think he even said when he later wins an Oscar that he had already played the role he wins an Oscar for in this movie, I believe. It's an indication of what he's capable of. And one of the most pleasant surprises of the second batch of films for me is how much I like some of his performances. But here it's just like, it's, it's the question of does the performance help the movie? And I, unfortunately I think even though it's a good performance, it doesn't because he's just not at the right stage of his career for it. Hmm. An actor in a movie, it can be, have two components to it. The performance aspect and the vibe that, and especially an iconic 
actor can give. I'm with you there, Peter, in that his character should have a certain color of, I'm too old for this shit. There should be a certain way that he is tired of his mission. And Wayne doesn't bring that to the movie. Part of it is that he's too vital a presence. And part of it is I don't think that the movie presents Brittles as a guy who's should be sent out the pasture. He, he just, clearly doesn't want to be. That's right. It just seems to be... My impression on the movie is that it's more of an army regulation that, look, he has to go, he's a very capable guy, but he, he, just, he just needs to go. So my perspective was that the idea of him being 60 was not, import, not as important for me. It was not important that he was a need to be an older guy. He just needs to be older than the, the rambunctious Ringo from Stagecoach. To, for this movie to be successful. He has to be a guy from who has all these action, has all this knowledge, but now he has to be concerned with all his ability is just going to fall short because of the circumstances. Just Things are just not going to go his way sometimes. And he has to have a measure in himself to feel that there is a new generation of soldiers, and he has to impart his knowledge and wisdom and training so that they can continue. The idea that the, his army group, he is just a part of it. And part of his job is to move over to the next generation. These are components of Wayne's approach that I found quite a revelation in this movie compared to what he's did earlier. And he delivers those, I feel, incredibly successfully. Another aspect of the film I, I want to bring up is its use of color, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty extraordinary. Uh, Ford has done some color films before, Drums Along the Mohawk and Three Godfathers being uh, two examples. But up until this point, seeing him utilize color this vibrantly, it's almost uh, expressionistic mm. uh, the way he uses it, particularly in those uh, cemetery scenes I was uh, talking about before, where it's literally a blood red sky that he's in front of. It pops in this film, and 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 color was utilized here and there in the '40s, but the vast majority of films uh, around this time were black and white. Probably the best uses of color were in the UK with the uh, Powell Pressburger films. Mm, but yeah. for, for for Hollywood, I think she, uh, she wore a yellow ribbon, just advanced the cause of we can make these things in color. And by the way, look how Monument Valley looks in color. Oh, yeah. Monument Valley never looked better. I mean, the, the Technicolor really is stunningly beautiful. And the great, to me, the greatest pleasures of this film were its visuals. Um, cinematographer Winton Hoke, I think, won an Academy Award for this. And interestingly filed a grievance about having the film. The, there's a notable storm scene mm-hmm. with beautiful strikes of lightning in the distance. And apparently Ford wanted to film it and he didn't think uh, it was safe. So Hulk wanted to leave, but they obviously filmed it. So he actually, even though he won a, an Academy Award, he filed a grievance over Ford's treatment <laughs> of, of him. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he'll definitely push you for things, right? And so, I mean, it, it really is. And in a movie I have other problems with. 
it's worth seeing for just the technicolor and the visuals alone. I really like how you said, Brad, about how expressionistic those colors are. Big time red shoe slash black narcissist thing going on in the cemetery and near the end. It's just wonderful crimson as the silhouette of Wayne is on a ridge before he gets the news. Mm, yes. and, there, and this is a fascinating film from its title. Before I saw this movie for the podcast, I always thought it was some sort of silly romance because she wore a yellow ribbon is, well, what's, what does that have to do about stopping Indian raids and so on? But it turns out to literally tie uh, certain themes of the movie in a really interesting way. The ribbon is part of the B-plot of the romantic triangle between Joanne Drew, John Agar, and Harry Carey Jr. They take turns trying to romance Drew's character, and Drew has a yellow ribbon in her hair that indicates that she has a sweetheart, which she, at different points, uses to point out to stop romancing me because I have the yellow ribbon. <laughs> It's a cute detail in the beginning, but it does tie things at the end because Wayne gets a message to saying, no, you have, there's a job in the army for you after all. And he gets taken back to, an, uh, to a uh, building. And as soon as he enters the room, he is then regaled with congratulations and attention by many of the people he's encountered, including a whole series of ladies and all of which have yellow ribbons mm -hmm. in their hair. It's a very cool visual image, but I think it also ties in to the cemetery scenes in an interesting way because the cemeteries also hold the body of his wife. And it's sort of implied that certain actions that had happened had caused the wife to meet her demise. And there's a really, really fascinating moment where as you see her gravestone, a shadow appears and then it cuts to Joanne Drew's character, yeah. who part of the story is that she needs to be escorted. So there's an interesting kind of dynamic at play is that Wayne's character feels part of his mission that he had failed was to, to lead these women to safety, and now he's given this sort of second chance. And the yellow ribbons are just maybe a kind of an example that even though certain problems happened in that mission, it was still an ultimate success. It's an interesting way of saying, what's that validation of being a good soldier or, or doing well? Is that the ladies have all got the ribbons all set for you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. There's a lot of treats in this film, and, and I think we're rightly going to be kind of harsh on some of the uh, comic relief sequences, <laughs> but they actually have a comic relief sequence in this one that I really like. And maybe my favorite bit by uh, Victor McLaughlin. Near the end of the film, McLaughlin's character is also about to retire, and Wayne doesn't want him to be part of the dangerous uh, final raid. So basically he <laughs> frames him to put him in civilian clothes and get him drunk so that he can uh, be locked up in the Hoosgau uh, until the danger has passed. And that leads to this 
insane scene uh, in the Fort Bar where eight guys are trying to, to apprehend him who, who are his friends and they like him. And But McLaughlin just loves drinking and loves fighting so much that he just beats up these eight guys with an enormous level of cheer and goodwill until he's uh, finally brought in when a, when a little old lady uh, says, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> that was definitely enough of that for that sequence. <laughs> I liked how multifaceted it was in a way that the 20 minute put on the glasses scene from They Live was not. <laughs> because each person has a different kind of loyalty or affection towards McLaughlin's character. Some actually hate him, some are like, oh, he's a great guy, but we got to get him to jail. And there is a blacksmith who in a really fun touch, halfway through, I think three quarters of the way through this flight, he just sits down and just is aghast at like, why is this going on? <laughs> um, McLaughlin in this movie most reminds me of a horribly uncharitable line set in Mystery Science Theater about a uh, 70s action movie uh, featuring some 70s character actors where one of them says, Oh, look, they shaved a gorilla. No, wait, that's uh, Claude Akins. <laughs> Mick Lachlan here is such a... He's a gigantic pet towards Wayne's character. <laughs> he's the loyal to a fault, always around when Wayne is um, waking up from his cabin and uh, providing all these rapt enthusiasms for whatever Wayne is up to. And... When they put him in that suit, it's just so... It's just so ridiculously out of place. It's definitely silliness, but there's also a kind of leisurely pace to this film that I, I think it works with. This isn't some kind of a, a non-stop action or heavy-on-plot film. It's very much about character interactions and friendships and loyalties and things like that. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think what you just mentioned is one of the faults of this film to me. Like, I felt like it was formless and undercooked mm. in a lot of places. And I understand, like, Ford, I mean, we talked about My Darling Clementine. There's a certain amleg nature to his films that I like. But this, because it was built towards a mission, like, I felt like it needed more momentum than it had. And just as we're approaching this mission at the end, as admittedly enjoyable as McLaughlin is in that scene, I just don't like the way he's used. We shouldn't have like a 10 minute break for this scene where it occurs in the movie. Um, it just doesn't come together. Like the interesting elements are there, but they're doled out in all the wrong ways. I just found it frustrating. Yeah, McLaughlin's presence is sort of at odds to Wayne's interactions with almost everyone else because I think it's really cool in a muted way how it's just examining a guy at the end of his career. And I think the pacing does help that. But then you get the gigantic monstrous atom bomb of McLaughlin coming in and go and all but panting at whatever John Wayne has to say and it just always it always comes across as 
one as a gigantic right turn out of the store where the veering away from the main part of the story. Well, McLaughlin's a bit like in the westerns, like when you're transporting nitro, you have to be very careful, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you yeah. don't want it to go off at the wrong right. place, <laughs> and it goes off in the wrong place in this movie. <laughs> like I think it's a he, you know he needs to be doled out with care, and to me that this movie didn't quite have the right amount. Yeah, of yeah, care. exactly. You would have like you would have like sort of a muted moment, and then would cut to his reaction shot, which might as well just have him go rut roll. <laughs> So if this film has a, a certain bigness and epic quality uh, to it, along with its emotional beats, uh, Ford is going to uh, bring the temperature a little down for his next few films. Starting with 1950s Wagon Master, where uh, Ford takes a break from the cavalry with this low-budget Western released in 1950, involving the efforts of two young horse traders, played by Ben Johnson and Harry Carey Jr., to safely escort a wagon train of pious Mormons through the harsh mountain terrains. Soon, they catch the attention of both a traveling medicine show and a family of bandits on the run. So a number of John Ford's stock company is present, particularly uh, Ward Bond uh, as the head of the Mormon clan. The world's most foul-mouthed Mormon. Yes, he constantly has to be uh, shushed by his more pious uh, colleagues. (laughs) But Ford has gotten rid of his stars for this movie. There's there's no John Wayne, there, there's no Henry Fonda, but uh, two of his major supporting guys are put into the leads for this film, and I want to kind of give a little bit of background on them of them because they're, they're both really interesting. Uh, ben Johnson, who uh, would end up being probably most known for his Oscar-winning role in uh, The Last Picture Show, started out as a stuntman and a horse wrangler and apparently he was so good with the horses that he he caught John Ford's attention and said I want this guy to start acting in my films and so he has a role in uh, uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon and here he is the lead. Now Harry Carey Jr. uh, is the son of Harry Carey who was Ford's go-to silent film star. Not the Cubs announcer. Yes, we have to be clear on that. (laughs) There may be cows, but they are not holy in these uh, particular (laughs) films. So yeah, Harry Carey Jr. was uh, brought into the stock company as in in, in a lot of Ford films at at this time in uh, memory of his father. Which is a really great sentiment, but has an interesting angle to it, seeing as how he's usually the dope who gets... uh, (laughs) Upraided over and over in these films. Which is also true behind the scenes. Uh, we talked a lot in part one about what a, uh, a really a terrible place uh, the set of a John Ford film can be. Mm. And uh, and Ford's, uh, Harry Carey Jr. has told many stories about how Ford's affection did not keep him from making Harry Carey often the scapegoat of his uh 
wrath and anger as uh, John Wayne would often be, be, and pretty much on every Ford film, somebody became the scapegoat that Ford would constantly pick on throughout the production. I don't know about you guys, though, but I actually found that Carrie's and Ben Johnson had a really fun dynamic to it. Um, Johnson is a fascinating presence here. I, this was probably the earliest performance I've seen of him. And he has this really cool, low-key charm that's delivered on a nice, even level. Sort of a, not quite Owen Wilson in terms of its OG aspect, but, but very much on its delivery. You kind of... This is oh, this is even crazier. It's just almost like Snoop Dogg, just the mm. way, just the way how he has a kind of drawl that just draws you, and it's like, oh, this guy's a fascinating dude. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, he, he reminds me in this case of kind of a young Sam Elliott. Okay, uh, right. He has that kind of, you know, well, whatever I'm gonna say, I'm pretty much gonna stand by it. But if you disagree, that's fine too, because I'm. Doing my thing. Yeah, and I thought of Matthew McConaughey in some of his roles as well. You know, he just has that laconic kind of guy you want to hang around with, like easygoing, but it's just so welcoming, I think. And and like, I I think you mentioned Owen Wilson, and that's that's what I take away from a lot of his films is just that there's no threat there, really, right? Like, there's just a welcoming presence. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about this movie, Ford said this is actually his one of his favorite of the films he had done. And to me, it's like a good film. It has some interesting bits, but it felt like minor Ford overall. Um, why do you think, like, what is it about this movie that he would have loved? Well, if, if you look at the films that he says that about, he usually cites three movies. He cites uh, Wagon Master... The Quiet Man and The Sun Shines Bright. And I think what they, they may have in common is there's a certain smallness to the films. He, They're very character-oriented, and they're not about uh, giant set pieces. They're kind of, they kind of emphasize the more easygoing nature of Ford's filmmaking. And, and that might be the aspects of his own films he enjoys most that's interesting because like i and maybe it's just like with the benefit of you know looking back in hindsight now where you know ford is this mythic figure in the film world and for him to highlight these films that feel so low-key and minor you know it's just interesting to me i mean this film has a lot of i mean it, it, it talks about the mormon experience which it uses as the immigrant experience in america in a lot of ways it has an interesting pacifist bent um, there are a number of points where guns are thrown away in the film and violence is presented as a last resort so i see like those themes in there it's just that i'm not there's not there was nothing to me about this presentation of them that screamed masterpiece the thing is i think it's those very qualities that attract a lot of people to this film. We're in a period here where hundreds of Westerns are coming out a year. Westerns are huge, and they come in all shapes and sizes, and they're everywhere. They're going to start to be on TV. And we're kind of used to thinking of movies like The Searchers as these uh, Ford master statements on the Westerns. But some people also call them odors just these little films with horses and cowboys and 
something to enjoy as a as a Saturday morning uh, matinee, and uh, I think this might fall into that category. Yeah, but Ford has made so many of these westerns, and why would this particular one be part of his favorites? I have to say, I don't have exact an answer for it. I think some of the appeal is that he explores the angle of how music can unite disparate groups, that musical sequence two-thirds of the way through, and in a really fun... Everyone is dancing or reacting in an interesting way, even the ba- even the bandit family. And you can... There's a great moment where you see everyone dancing in the foreground, and in the background is the carnival traveling road show setup, mm-hmm. and there is a person who is a snake oil salesman who's just been a little tired, but you can just see his legs are still tapping back and forth to the, to the uh, uh, rousing melody. And I think that's that kind of particular charm is something that's been a concern of, not a concern, has been an interest of Ford for a couple of these movies we've talked about. It comes in here, as does the idea of the bad family, but there's still squabbling family dynamics that happened um, with Walter Brennan's family in the earlier four right. films. So I think that he takes those elements that he likes and he puts it in a case where you're not in the middle of a monu- we're not in the middle of Monument Valley on a gigantic logistical army production, and I think you can then get into more fun details about and just hang out with these two youngsters those might be just a fun experience to film right and when you ask for it his favorite film that might be what he means he might be like well this is the one i enjoyed shooting the most mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and when we talk about his future films the other two though have very very to me very obvious reasons for why he would say those are the favorites mm-hmm. here i think he's exploring things that he likes but maybe in a way where he doesn't have to make uh, grand statements about it. So a fun, maybe a vacation movie to the extent that a Ford set can be a vacation event. Something like that. There are some interesting thematics, particularly how this uh, wagon train grows with various outsider-type characters. Mm -hmm. The uh, traveling medicine show where it's uh, left a little ambiguous whether uh, the daughter is a uh, prostitute or not, kind of brings in this love of outsiders that Ford will go back to again and again. And even even the Mormon community is considered a minority, an outsider in the uh, greater uh, Christian world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was also, I get a little fun out of how the part of the traveling medicine show, the younger uh, female is sort of romance by the Ben Johnson character, but mm-hmm. her outlook is so open in a way that the more stoic Mormon lady is as she attempts to be romanced by the uh, Harry Carey Jr. character. I really like how those two different approaches Right, it, it, It's an early version of the Madonna Horror Syndrome, oh, which right. will be much more explored in The Searchers, of these two types of women that the, the, the two guys are attracted to. I really agree with you that a lot of Ford's themes are here. I especially liked, um, too, that the Native Americans, again, are presented as reasonable people. 
they view the white men as thieves. And that I think the film seems to endorse that view, even though the villains here are very stock, <laughs> like they're not very strong. But I do like that they all share the wagon train. And then it goes from there and digging into how America will come together and the, and the problems along the way and the things we'll have to overcome and the role violence plays into that. So it's not like there's nothing here. It's just that it's very low key. Yes. <laughs> And Ford will continue in this Loki manner as he returns to the Cavalry Trilogy. I was on my way down to Mexico, there was trouble on the rise. It was nothing more than I left behind, which was much to my surprise. I turned around and lit a cigarette, wiped the dust off of my boots. With off my head, I saw the crowd. which wraps up with Rio Grande in 1950. It again stars John Wayne as a cavalry lieutenant colonel whose estranged son signs up with his unit. Soon his mother, played by Maureen O'Hara, comes to retrieve the young man. But sense of duty and family soon conflict and are complicated further when Apaches attack the fort. Rio Grande was made for a very particular purpose for uh, a good number of years Ford's dream project would be the quiet man he left uh, the majors to work with the smaller Republic studio on this and and the execs at uh, Republic said well okay we'll we'll make the quiet man for you but you know we don't have a lot of confidence in this uh, strange Irish comedy so maybe you can give us uh, a western while you're at it and that Western ended up being this film. Yeah, it, and I think to me like that shows through in this film. When I watched this, it felt like a bit of quote-unquote playing the hits. <laughs> I think he's done a lot of this before. There are some interesting parts of it. I, I think it's those things we've seen from him with a dash of the relationship between Wayne and Maureen O'Hara standing in for reconstruction. Um, it's that kind of American narrative writ small here, which I think is very interesting. And Wayne is very good in this film. I think this is my favorite performance of his to date in the films we've seen. He has the understated weary regret in his eyes. It's very effective. And Ben Johnson is strong again as well. The film goes into some interesting places about, again, the role of the military and what's um, how Ford feels about it. So there are a lot of interesting things here. But again, it's in that low-key mode of not really rising to the level of classic Ford. You're so right about playing the hits because they keep playing them. There's four or five moments where the movie stops cold to have people get serenaded. I think there was a group called the Sons of the Pioneers uh, who, uh, I mean, it's almost like a Marx Brothers movie and how you just stop things to just have a musical sequence over and over in this one. And while the quote-unquote trilogy is about characters with different names, or in Wayne's case, slightly different names, I found it really fascinating how this movie is very much what you'd expect the third movie of a proper trilogy would be. Like if you had a character who was a dedicated soldier 
And then in the second movie, you see a soldier going older. Well, how do you twist it? Well, you give him a kid, don't you? <laughs> right? Isn't that a common uh, trope when a, uh, when a series has gone on a little long? And it just introduces not just his estranged son, but a whole bunch of kids. Yeah, c- c- Cousin Oliver shows up <laughs> yeah, in this movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with this film, but I, I do agree that it is... I think, Peter, what you were saying about Wagon Master, I feel more applies to this one, especially when you compare them to the uh, two earlier films of the trilogy. And I think it says something that maybe the image that I will most take away from this movie is an incredibly impressive set of stunts where a number of characters have to do what's called Roman riding, where they basically take two horses and stand with one foot on each horse. And what's impressive... (laughs) No, no, I'm just just laughing because, boy, is that a wonderfully useful thing for someone to do. (laughs) Well, it's entertaining to watch, at least. Sure, Uh, sure, it is. So you have what 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 was pretty impressive when I thought they were uh, stuntmen doing it. But as it turns out, this bit really was done by the actors themselves. Yeah, the shooting of this is really stunning. There aren't any cuts, so you know that the actors are doing it, which is, re- I was shocked. It's like one of those things now when, you know, in this world of CGI we live in, when you see something authentic happen, mm-hmm. it really, I mean, it, it's breathtaking. It's really a stunning sequence in a, in a relatively minor part of the film. The- it fits Ben Johnson's character so delightfully. There is a cool meta thing where, where he's sent on a mission and Wayne points out, well, we already know you're a real good judge of horses, seeing as how you stole mine. Right. <laughs> In fact, I think even Wayne says, you know what, why don't you just use my horse? You clearly know how to use them. <laughs> yeah. I also really did like Maureen O'Hara in that. Yeah. We'll, we'll discuss her a little further, perhaps giving a, a more uh, broad performance. But here I found her very effective as kind of the representative of the family dynamic because one of Ford's themes is to contrast this kind of call of the West of adventure of war with the family itself and to have the family right there in this tug of war on the base create really interesting scenes. Definitely. I want to add that the person playing Wayne's estranged son does a really great job and there's a you could look at the movie as sort of a com- the quote unquote coming of age of of him and and I think his interactions with uh, Wayne and O'Hara work out re- really nicely it's a great family dynamic and I think it's a fun addition to this part of these three of uh, those three movies about how Wayne finally has a woman who is his Strength of personality equal. Mm-hmm. Ford Apache, he just is dealing with uh, Shirley Temple, and it's clearly just a met uh, a a old an older uncle kind of or mentor kind of situation. And as I said about Yellow Ribbon, I think the dynamics upon how you're doing things for the benefit of women younger than you as a romantic partner was really an interesting development in that film. But here. O'Hara stands up to Wayne. Wayne is a huge presence, like we pointed out. He pulls in everybody to draws in your attention. But O'Hara's able to match it, I think, in this in this show. She has this great presence, and it's a 
it's no accident how where they where they ended up in subsequent movies let's say yeah i agree i mean i i, I think to me again that aside from their personal chemistry, I think I really liked how their, as I said, the relationship seems to stand in for the North and South in America and what's going on there and trying to, you know, rekindle things between themselves. I, I thought that was a really nice kind of metaphorical touch. The strength of this movie to me, I think is again, Ford's conflicted feeling about the military, which I, I have to say, I'm not really sure I like, and maybe why I, I feel this film is a little bit better, even though I don't like where it comes down and that Ford, or I'm sorry, Wayne's character is very weary, yet there's a kind of take the gloves off aspect to this film where he wants to pursue and be more military, militarily aggressive. And that seems to be where the film ends on saying like, that's what should be done in this instance, but it doesn't really jive with the regret of the character overall. I just found that very interesting. Like I said, the fact that it comes down on the side of aggression, I can't sign on with. But I thought that was another great example of Ford dealing with his conflicted feelings about the military. Well, it's it's really fun. I think it's really fun to compare his approach to his son in this movie with his approach to the younger soldiers under his command in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. There's a point where he's telling Maureen O'Hara... You in a really fun line, you know, you make it very easy to say yes to what you are asking of me, but it's not up to me because my son needs to learn how his word is everything and you have to follow things through even if it, uh, it means your end. I think that philosophical thing you're talking about where you take the gloves off is sort of in a way how you're going to treat your your kid in a different way of having him learn as opposed to people who are not your kids and you're in charge of taking care of them. In that way, it's no accident that you're literally carrying a wagon load of little kids mm-hmm. as part of a climactic moment at the end. And also that both Wayne's child and these children are in a church. So I think Ford contains all these different feelings and thoughts about how you how to deal with people and it's different in a per when it's personal as opposed to with the military which has its own sense of loyalty and its own sense of duty i think it's you look at these two films yellow ribbon and, and rio grande and you're seeing both two different parts get explored right i do i do think uh peter your point also might include the treatment of the indian tribes here which is a bit of a regression after mm-hmm. moving forward with a, a more modernistic view of Native Americans, we we're retu- we return here to kind of the faceless enemy. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you have that sense of, well, if it's, I'll do anything for my kid, and that all those concerns of having to fit in society fall fall away or fall by the wayside. It's fascinating to me how in Yellow Ribbon, I don't even think, like, Wayne pulls his gun in it because it's so much about, like, getting things to work and getting people to accommodate together. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, it's just like, no, my kid needs to do this. These kids need rescues. And it's so much more stark and one-sided as a result. Right. Yeah, and putting kids in danger always just feels so manipulative to me. Like, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to do that in a good way, and this movie doesn't find a way to do it. Um, It just felt manipulative. Well, it literally has a little girl who 
is uh, having lots of fun at all the shooting oh, <laughs> that they want to. So, <laughs> so I don't really know how much of the confusion comes from being inappropriate and how much of the confusion comes from how Ford approach approaches that. Because are they really going to have that much of a blast at this case? <laughs> so there are significantly less children and 100% less gunplay in Ford's next movie, 1952's The Quiet Man. Town in the county down one morning last July. From a boring green came a sweet Colleen, and she smiled as she passed me by. She looked so sweet from her two bare feet to the sheen of her nut brown hair. Such a coaxing elf, sure I shook myself for to see I was really there. Where John Wayne's American boxer Sean Thornton returns to his birthplace, the small Irish village of Innisfree. There he meets and falls in love with Maureen O'Hara's Mary-Kate Danaher. Culture clashes and quaint Irish customs abound, particularly the need for Mary-Kate's brutish brother to approve their union. Her brutish brother, played by noted quiet person, Victor McLaughlin. (laughs) Also a brother who is roughly, what, 30 years older? (laughs) Yes, it's... (laughs) There's a lot of other siblings, too. (laughs) Even by Irish families, that's quite a stretch run. (laughs) I know. I kept, when I was first watching the show, I can't, I mean, that's her father, right? And they're like, no, brother. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the impression I had as well. Frankly, the idea that Victor McLaughlin has siblings at this point frightens me. I'll just say up front, I didn't like this movie really at all. And what's interesting to me is that, Brad, as you talked about, that this had been such a passion project for Ford and something that, you know, he gave the studio kind of a one for them, one for me trade of making a Western and then being able to make this because it so gives into all his worst tendencies. I think I'll borrow a phrase from, uh, <laughs> from the Supreme Court here and just say this is sentimental argle bargle. <laughs> There's really not much going on here. And man, it was this was a rough go for me. Some people like to show pictures of their kids. But if you know someone who will spend two hours showing you picture after picture, you won't want to be with that person for much longer. (laughs) In a similar way, John Ford clearly loves his homeland, his birthplace of Ireland. And maybe it's not the best idea to have two hours nonstop showing how wonderfully whimsical for that long. I don't think I've seen a travelogue for a Walt Disney cruise that is just so been so overbearing about how damn magical this place is going to be than The Quiet Man. Well, I can't disagree, but but a lot of people do. This is the film that won John Ford his fourth Oscar as best director. And Danny Perry, who uh, wrote the uh, cult movies book series, basically said that this has become the official film of Irish Americans uh, seeking connection to their their homeland. And that kind of leads me to ask kind of why I feel disconnected to the film. 
I think it comes down to the idea of ethnic humor. So being Jewish, I grew up with a lot of humor that was very Yiddish. Uh, things like uh, Alan Sherman albums and uh, Mel Brooks' Carl Reiner, 2,000-year-old man stuff. Things that I enjoyed as part of a culture and obviously were popular outside the culture. But at the same time, there was always something like when they went into some Yiddish phrases like, okay, I got these jokes that a lot of people wouldn't. And I think this is very much the equivalent for Irish culture. I mean, what I didn't realize quite as strongly until this viewing is that this is just a straight-up comedy. There is a love story, but that that, that takes a back seat. This is a vaudeville-esque collection of Irishisms and stereotypes and and featured players and just everything Irish. And maybe it helps to be a little Irish to enjoy it. Well, well, can I say, though, like to your point, though, it definitely gives in to comedy. But one of the things that really frustrated about me about this movie was that it gives the Wayne's character a backstory about he's a boxer who has killed someone in the ring. And he won't, as a result, he will not fight anymore. The main tension of the film is that his uh, bride-to-be's brother will not let her marry him. And he will not fight for her. And then once they do get married, he also won't fight for her dowry. He just refuses to give in to those violent impulses because, allegedly, he's been so harmed by his past actions. Yet when the film comes down to it, it plays his ultimate giving in to those tendencies as a complete joke. And there's like an extended fight sequence with McLaughlin at the end where it sells out the drama it had built up in that internal conflict for a a gag that isn't funny and that goes on for a long time. Um, I am actually less charitable than you about that. I think that the development about him not fighting is is treated by the movie as nothing but a complete negative. Wayne's character is failing because he isn't going to come to blows. And so his ultimate design to go and do the fight is supposed to be a wonderfully charming, delightful triumph of the human spirit <laughs> to, to be able to bash each other's heads in for 20 minutes is, uh, is the feel-good, happy ending of this film. I, I, I get that. I get what you're saying, but to me, the part of it that I can't, get there for is there's a little flashback sequence of Wayne in the ring where these really kind of expressionistic close-ups of his face, which to me were the best part of the film, Mm -hmm. after he realizes he's killed his opponent that really hit home for me and to me you cannot have both those things in a successful movie you can't have that look on Wayne's face, another strong part of his performance and this just god-awful, never-ending fight scene at the end in order to have those both work, there has to be a more, there has to be better awareness of the tone of each of those scenes. And this film has no fucking idea of that tone whatsoever. The comic tone is so overwhelming that these dramatic beats, which, as you described in, in another movie, would be the core, feel almost like afterthoughts. Exactly. I mean, we are we spend so much time with Barry Fitzgerald as the the matchmaker mm. uh, who is just full of antics. And we, we, we spend a lot more time on this than in anything 
plot related. And even Maureen O'Hara, who I think when I first saw the movie, I, I just viewed as, well, this this love story part of it is not really working for me. But then I realized, well, it's not even taking it that seriously because Maureen O'Hara is mugging and overplaying just as much as anyone with her wide eyes and her constant look of uh, of skittishness and fright like she's a rabbit being chased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned at the start of today's episode, Brad, about how these films are very masculine and we don't get a sense of a feminine perspective or a woman's perspective at all. Another frustrating part about this film to me was that it has this thread of O'Hara stating that her dowry gives her self-worth that it, she's yeah. earned it and that Wayne won't fight for that. And I just wish they had pursued more of why the O'Hara character felt that way and what it meant to her to have her have that worth. And like the film just kind of pays lip service to it and it doesn't really explore it. There is a way near the end which tries to mitigate uh, like her continual harping upon why don't I get this money? Why don't I get this money? But the first time you see the movie, I myself was just amazed because I'm, I was looking at her continual harping on the subject, and I'm thinking, well, oh my God, I'm not just, I'm not seeing a gold digger, I'm seeing a pot of gold digger. But what's interesting to me though is that, like, it seems like he treats the Wayne character treats it that way, right? Like he just sees her as someone who's after this financial gain but for her it's not that and like that's a really interesting potential route to explore what that means to her and that that's something she's earned in her mind and it just i i really hated that the film was sort of in a oblivious way alluding to it and then not doing a goddamn thing with it, it to explore it it wasn't subtle at all it's non-existent yeah. she is continually just asking for the money where's the money where's the money where's the money to a way that is just, honestly, I found really ugly. How transactional is it? It's just like, you don't value, you don't value me unless you get this money for me. I mean, that's like, that's downright prost, I found it downright prostitutical, you know? I don't think the film quite meant it that way. And I think it could have been better at explaining it. But in this tradition, the money equals honor. So she's not really talking about money here. It's not that they need this to survive, but this money represents family honor, and that's what she keeps uh, harping. Her her self-worth. Well, right, right, which is awful. She, by marrying Thornton, is also a transaction between families. (laughs) And the movie equates the two with no undercurrent of criticism to it whatsoever. The idea it's treated like virginity is in uh, for females in other cultures. The value she brings to this relationship and the value that the money is there is, and the how quote-unquote honor between the two is all of a piece. And that's, I kind of find it pretty repugnant. Yeah, in a better film, these would be themes. But instead, they're just things that are touched upon and make way for the shtick. And there's just so much shtick. 
Yeah, the yeah the Ireland section of Epcot Center does not have as much um, uh, forced whimsy as what's going what's going on through large sections of this movie. Yeah, and I will say one of my regrets about seeing this film is the DVD transfer. I saw this was not very good. I have a feeling that the primary pleasures of this movie, if there are to be any, are visual. And I unfortunately didn't see the best presentation of that. So we're working in Technicolor here again, and it, there's a lot of potential for the visual aspect of this to be great. And I can't really, unfortunately can't really comment on that just because of the way I saw the film. It's almost like John Ford saw the deficiency of how you filmed, how green was my Valley in black and white. And you don't actually get the chance to see how green your Valley was. (laughs) And so the quiet man vastly overcompensates (laughs) for this. Such gigantic uh, vistas of green of the rolling hills and the and the winding paths. It's very very much has a sense of showing Ireland, the land as a magical place, and that's probably where I find the movie most effective. Is that like it's wow, this is it's so verdant. It's just be a wonderful place to travel and 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 visit and encounter. Whereas in other Ford films, the landscape just goes, can inform the characters or the story. Here it's just about presenting the area as just a, a magic world of delight. Right, and there's no distance between director and subject matter. He's been putting in uh, stock Irish characters from the beginning. We mentioned some uh, back in the silent days with the Iron Horse. And so this is his chance to absolutely bathe in this Irishness that is so important to him and so much a part of of his identity. And so I think maybe some of the directorial decisions that might come with, with a little bit of distance from the material are gone here as he's just he, as he's just fallen in love and revels in everything. Yeah, and right. The t- the energy is just kept at this maniacally high pace of just giving in the. It's not just that the shtick is different levels of appealing for different people. Let's say, <laughs> but it's delivered at such a continuous rate that I personally felt like I was being assaulted by a fire hose pushing out a, a shamrock shake in my face. <laughs> All right, so heading back to the States. (laughs) Heading back to the States, John Ford courts uh, potential controversy of another kind with The Sun Shines Bright in 1953. Oh, the sun shines bright On old Kentucky home Tis summer The old folks are gay well, the corn tops right And the meadows in the bloom While the birds make music all the day This is Ford's follow-up to his own 1934 comedy, Judge Priest, which, if you heard our earlier episode, you know that Peter was a, a real big fan of that movie. I, I believe I had a very nuanced take on that film where I said, fuck this movie. <laughs> <laughs> very, very thought out, very profound. Um, well, no, but I, I think what really bothered me about uh, that film is that I couldn't get past the clear presentation, racist presentations in that movie, which was a comedy. And even though, like, 
you need to take error into account when it's in your face as much as it was in that film. It, it's something that's much easier said than done. And that film was so egregiously ugly in its racial presentations that I just could not get past it. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how how many more swear words you would have towards the subject on, yeah. on, on this film. Which seems to be a follow. It seems to be a follow up or a further the further adventures of Mister Priest. He's up for re-election in a small Kentucky town, which is home to Confederate and Union veterans, but as well as former slaves. And now the judge would like to unite all factions, but the return of a dying prostitute and a young black man wrongly accused forces Judge Priest to take some unpopular sides, and so. What's your impression on what this movie was doing compared to what Judge Priest was doing? Well, I, I think it comes out for me, this movie is as thoughtful as Judge Priest was shallow. And I think this film is successful, but it's a qualified success because there are still some problems with it. But overall, it's it's much more thought out in terms of its racial relations. And it, it certainly honors the experience of African-Americans. The, the main addition to the film here is a, is a attempted lynching sequence where our hero, Judge Priest, essentially saves a man from being lynched. This man has been charged with or accused of raping a young white woman, which is obviously very politically charged, racially charged material, right? And what really stuck out to me is that the sequence leading up to this, it shows you, the camera goes into the African-American neighborhoods. It shows just the the fear on the face of the African-American characters as they know this lynch mob is on its way. A film that can honor the feelings that those people felt as minority in a white-driven society is a thoughtful film to me. And then we go on to have Judge Priest give a long kind of oratory protecting the young man who's going to be lynched this film is like a a racial it's racial politics and cultural place are full of landmines and sometimes ford steps on them and sometimes he very adroitly misses them it's really a strange film from today's perspective because it touches on a lot of incredibly modern social problems basically being how do we deal with the fallout from the civil war and in our current politics we're still asking that question and ford has his ideas about that in 1953 and Basically, he's created this ideal fantasy of where North and South can coexist in one town as well as the former slaves. And Peter, you're, you're absolutely right that he has made such a step forward from, from Judge Priest in his depiction of the African-American experience, but it's not total. We still have Lincoln Perry, whose stage name, uh, Step and Fetch It, doing what he does, which is a, a very offensive minstrel portrayal. This was the kind of thing that was considered acceptable at the time. It is completely unacceptable in our time, and it's difficult to watch any time this character has screen time. 
a number of the other characters are subject to the same kind of stereotyped uh, overacting, yet other characters are not. Other African-American characters are portrayed with dignity, and they now fit into kind of Ford's panorama of outsiders that are touched on in Stagecoach and in Wagon Master because another uh, prominent subplot is a prostitute who returns to town and is uh, very sickly and, and, and dying. And Judge Priest has to decide, how do we embrace this person? For Priest, the answer is always embrace everyone. This film is a huge step forward. And what the film wants to be is showing America as this place of reconciliation. And now we can look back from modern presence and and say, like, obviously that hasn't happened with Charlottesville and the fact that our president is a bigot. We haven't gotten past that. But this film wants to present America as as perhaps the only place in the world where that can happen. But the part of it that's impossible to swallow is that it presents the Judge Priest character. He's a former Confederate soldier. And I think what happens is the rebel in Ford wants to honor the rebellion of the Confederacy. But there's no way someone like Priest ever would have been a member of the Confederacy in the first place with his racial views. It so rings false that a person from the Confederacy would not act in the way he does. And I think Ford wants to present this false personification of an enlightened person who's moved on from that without being willing to confront what the Confederacy really was and what it really did. And the fact that he has this sort of endpoint he wants to reach of America as this place of reconciliation means that this movie is going to shortchange the horror of the Confederacy and build Priest up in a way that it really shouldn't. And it's just, as much as I admire his aim, you can't do that. Yeah, that's one of the landmines the film steps right on. Because I think Ford is wants to look at Priest almost as a surrogate for himself. Exactly. As he tends to do with, with, with some of his politician characters. Hmm. Um, as good a man as Priest is, and as well as he treats the members of his community, specifically the prostitute character... One man's honor can't balance out the brutality of the Confederacy as much as Ford would like it to in this film, despite how well and how honorably Judge Priest acts to the other members of the community, including the prostitute character we talked about before. Yeah, that's really interesting, Peter, because I with certain exceptions, I don't know how much of the movie's not the movie's not really presented as a fable. Though that might be part of its intent or part of the desire of the movie is to show a way out of these racial tensions. I like the setup of the movie to show how Priest was trying to appeal, like politicians need to, to as many people as possible. And so there was an interesting comic bit of business where he's part of the Confederate guys and... It turns out that the American, they salute the American flag as well as the Confederate flag. In acute development, it turns out that the American flag was stolen from where Northern enthusiasts had, uh, were holding it. And there's a big ceremony as it's carried over back there and where Priest then continues his spiel to run for mayor. 
Right. I, I think you, you hit it that there's a, it's this kind of idealistic place where reality takes a back seat to this kind of uh, folksiness and humor that that Ford loves so much. We talked about why Ford considers some movies his favorites, and, and this is one he often cites. And I think it is this kind of love of the way this town operates, which is very not real world, but something that, that's attractive on a uh, movie level. And I think part of the thing that is fascinating on how Ford is exploring these and I think that's one of the values of the film is that he's not, he is idealizing, but he's not being manipulative, I feel, in his idealization in the way that he was doing in The Quiet Man. I look at what's happening in The Sun Shines Bright, and I look at a filmmaker who is really exploring these contradictions and these tensions and not arriving at easy answers and, and stepping on landmines sometimes when you're, uh, doing this dance among these sensitive issues, you're going to step on some landmines. But I appreciate his effort on on doing this in this film. And it's buoyed by a more sardonic, undercutting kind of humor, as opposed to the pure vaudeville wackiness of the previous film, it's very wry, and, and I guess maybe I respond better to that sort of humor, but it's considerably more subtle in its effect, but gets a little more cutting as a result. Like, I really like, for example, he befriends two um, uh, backwoods people, and they spend this time at a, uh, a temperance area taking these little donuts and popping in into their jug of incredibly hard liquor, I'm going to assume, <laughs> and then when, to get votes... Priest and his crew of uh, associates uh, try to attend here, and then they see the these backward guys on the porch, and they say, "Well, what, what do you have there in the jug?" They say, "Refreshments." <laughs> by the way, the the younger of the two, played by a very young Slim Pickens. Oh, nice! And the older guy is also super fascinating detail because there's a moment where he needs to fire on someone. He fires someone, and it, the the shot is successful, and he shows his uh, young associate by waving his hand straight ahead and to show, see, got the shot. At that moment, I realized, oh my God, that's the same ornery old guy who would do the spittoon in Judge Priest. (laughs) And then he would angle his hand in a motion to show, see, I got the shot. The one redeeming part of Judge Priest. (laughs) It's it's, it's spittoon gay. (laughs) He's my my favorite character, yeah, in Judge Priest. (laughs) And it's the same actor. The same actor being John Ford's brother, Francis Ford. <laughs> who, will sh- who shows up often as the silent old guy in just about all of these films. Mm-hmm. So it was a delightful comeback to, to realize who mm-hmm. that person is. Right. And they those two later show up in a wonderful moment as the parades are coming in for different political campaigns. But they decide to join in on, on Judge Priest's campaign. And they do this by, they were sitting on a porch... And as they stand up, you see a sign saying, "This his political opponent is against all these moonshiners," <laughs> which, <laughs> which of course is gonna, uh, of course they're gonna go join in on on priest. And the riest and best line was in that moment where priest saves the young African American from a hanging, 
And at this, it's very amazing dramatically. And at the end, the African-American says, thank you so much. I will do anything to support you. And Priest's response is, well, sorry, son, you can't vote. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the movie ends up at some of the same questions that, that, that many Robert Altman movies ask is, uh, what makes a community and what, what makes somebody a part of the community? And that question is faced by Judge Priest, who, like Ford, is an alcoholic, and you constantly see him going, well, i gotta, got to take my medicine to get my heart started. Yes, um, that's his catchphrase, yeah. And so having alienated all these people by preventing the lynching and by uh, embracing the prostitutes, by marching with them in their funeral, which also brings other community members with them, the question becomes direct. Can a man who embraces these outsiders be embraced himself by the community at large in in the electoral process. Right. And that leads to one of the most remarkable things that the movie did for me. Certain other films and certain other films of John Ford's have had potential issues with being a little scattershot, sort of, where, where you have these different events and you're not quite seeing how they're gelling together. And the story just kind of moves along. But one of the things I was amazed by this movie is that this movie is exactly the opposite. The last half of this film is three different series of increasingly dramatic, drawn-out climaxes of sentiment. And maybe for that reason, I was locked in on the feelings and the however idealistic that the movie's trying to do in a way that I didn't even feel with how green was my valley. And I think part of the reason for me that it res- I responded so well is because it has momentum. It starts with that would-be lynching scene. But then the funeral thing almost follows right after. And that's even bigger. It's so much of, I think, Ford's most idealistic statement about everyone getting together and the idea of valuing people no matter what society thinks of them is brought out in this complete sustained i think 15 minutes right oh that sequence is absolutely stunning it's one of the best sequences in any of the films we watched Uh, the silence of the procession the interior design of the church the lighting framing and performances just it's worth seeing this movie just for that Mm -hmm. and it concludes with Priest winning the election, but he's at home, and then all the characters from the movie pass by, including those people who stopped, who he had stopped from lynching, which have a sign saying, he saved us from ourselves. And I think the idea of that sequence is that it's literally a parade of every part of America, right? Yes. And that's what he wants to show. It could come off as corny, and there's certainly an aspect of it to that, but The fact that his view has been hard-earned, Ford's view is coming from an honest place and is hard-earned, it actually does work. And that leads us to the fascinating final shot of the film. Mostly fascinating to me in how it will be echoed later on in The Searchers, another film with a Confederate protagonist. What we basically see is Judge Priest entering his home through one doorway and then another. And the lights go out 
and he's uh, silhouetted in the final doorway before it closes with him inside. So this echoes the end of The Searchers, where John Wayne is in the doorway, but shut outside, meaning of the community. So here, because it looks somewhat somber, so you, you can view this as Judge Priest is alone in his home with the community outside, or is the fact that he's silhouetted in this doorway, which is is clearly a visual that means something to Ford, does it mean that because he's inside and not out, that he is always going to be embraced in this community? Yeah, that's a fascinating, evocative sequence. I kind of take it to mean that he has moved himself into history. Hmm. That he... He is a person who has had some flaws and some quirks and so on, but through his actions of reaching out to people, no matter how low their station was considered by the rest of the community, has managed to elevate that community. And so it kind of, I had the sense of his quote unquote job here is done and he's returning to his home planet or so on. He's achieved a kind of saintliness perhaps, or at the very least a, a figure that of historical note. He's on the boat going to live with the elves, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, that's the, exactly. It may sound very silly to compare a movie talking about right, racial issues based on the Civil War to Lord of the Rings, but the sentiments there and the, and the fact and that, at least for myself, it was won over there, I did feel he had had a hard-fought conflict where the outcome was continually in doubt and he had triumphed but at some sort of huge cost no i I agree what i was that was sort of a glib comment what i wanted to reference with that was that he's had a lonely and treacherous journey that he's gone on and he has been he's lost things along the way as well because there is an elegiac feel to that moment as well he is alone it's been a long lonely journey where he tried to do the right thing and now there's there is a satisfaction that goes with that, but he's paid a price too. And that's what that shot conveys to me. So we move on from one of Ford's most beloved projects to uh, a project that, uh, as we'll find out, is possibly his least beloved, a film called Mr. Roberts. In uh, 1955, uh, takes place on a Navy cargo ship near the end of World War II and is based on an acclaimed stage play. James Cagney is the ship's captain, gruff and by the book at all times. This puts him at odds with his ragtag crew, particularly Henry Fonda's title executive officer, who won't back down from the bullying captain. Unlike Jack Lemmon's Ensign Pulver, who tries to avoid the captain's wrath at all costs. Let me just, I'll just say, I ended up liking it quite a bit. Although the beginning of it is rough, to say the least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Ford's comic bits can be really rough. And the beginning of this movie is, 
Well, it's sort of interestingly explicit about sex. Like it, it's almost like a precursor of Porky's, where they're they're <laughs> watching. <laughs> Yes. For those keeping much. score, this is the first mention of Porky's in the John Ford podcast. <laughs> well, so yeah, this, the sequence I'm 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 referencing is there's the sailors are on this supply boat and they're it, like kind of at port and there there's been a new hospital put up in on the island and they're on the boat using binoculars and a, a telescope to watch nurses shower <laughs> and because apparently the blinds haven't been put up yet in the nurses shower so they're watching it and trying to get away without the boss catching them basically it's fairly explicit. There's a scene where, where after they do get busted, there's a soldier holding an extended um, telescope out from his crotch, and he actually says the line, I'm just figuring out how to use this thing. <laughs> so, so it's very, very, uh, very subtle in its exploration of uh, male sex drive, I guess. It also ex- points out how wonderfully ragtag this crew is to decide the optimum place to go and uh, view this uh, surreptitiously horrible activity is on the top deck of the ship where everyone can see them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the the most stage-bound of all the Ford films I've seen. And I, I think it's saved to the extent that it's saved just by having these amazing actors that I love watching. James Cagney, I think, is at his best when he's in comic mode, and I never get tired of his slow burn intensities. Henry Fonda, always great, kind of doing a little bit of a comic tweak on his uh, usual uh, self-righteous 12 Angry Man kind of guy. And this is the movie that pretty much introduced the world to Jack Lemmon. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at. Despite the rough start, eventually I enjoyed being around these guys. Like Mm -hmm. it actually was like the writing and the performances were enough for me that I I liked spending time with with them. And, And that the honest... Uh, kind of interactions and push and pull they had with each other, specifically uh, the Fon- Henry Fonda character, the Jack Lemmon character, and the William Powell character. Those three have there. There are many scenes where they're all in quarters, basically in a small interior. And this is a widescreen film, and the conversations with them are just so beautifully staged. We've talked many times about Ford's compositional abilities, and I really felt them here, where this little matchbox size room is so visually interesting because of the way the characters move around in it, the balance that's maintained, people entering the frame, people leaving the frame. There's a simple scene where the Powell character is lying lengthwise across the bottom bunk and it takes up the whole widescreen. And then you have the Lemon character pop his head down from above. And it's such an interesting contrast of the the vertical presence coming in on the horizontal. And this film and this kind of like throwaway goofy comedy in a lot of ways ended up with camaraderie I liked and visuals I loved. Me, I found the performances a mixed bag. So this introduces Jack Lemmon as Michael Sarah. <laughs> uh, we're back just, to Michael Sarah. <laughs> well, Jack Jack Lemmon was at his most caricature of Jack Lemmon. Just, just all nervousy, sputtery. Of spastically frantic behavior and nothing else to it. All the robust characterizations that 
defined his roles in greatness from the apartment to the China Syndrome to Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. None of this is evident. I'm I'm seeing just a kind of slightly more verb a much more articulate Jerry Lewis uh, level of <laughs> of just spasmatic uh, delivery. So so you don't. Like the the climax of this this film is really that character's growth, right? Yeah, I did. And you I, you didn't care about that? Well, I found that Gross just existed at the end. He just finds the dramatic piece of news and then realizes he needs to sort of take over from that. I well, well I, up till then I found him just as this um, uh, uh, skeevy scheming goofball. Well, he is a skeevy scheming goofball, but like to me, like that has been set up by the Fonda character, and this is going to be a spoiler, so this film is set on a supply ship. It's not in any fighting. Um, The Fonda character wants to be in the fighting as the war is winding down, and he basically throughout the film chastises the Lemon characters not being able to follow through on anything he sets out to do. That that he's a big talker with no, no action, basically. And the conclusion of the film is that the Fonda character has been transferred into the war's Section, uh, the fighting part of the war. He, in a very manipulative touch, um, is found to be dead. They they get a last letter from him saying that he's been killed in action. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the lemon character follows through on his earlier pledges just to basically um, take the piss out of the Cagney character and stand up to him finally. Mm-hmm. And he does that at that point. And, yeah. So and I, I found that like payoff of their relationship to have value. Okay, I wished it was developed in the earlier scenes to an extent that you see Lemon's growing appreciation. I didn't really, I didn't really find that. I just saw that he would—he's just another L flavor to counter between uh, Fonda's uh, I, comic idealism and then the cynicism of William Powell's Doc, who I do tremendously enjoy because yeah. Powell, on the other hand, is a presence who I miss in modern films. I He has a unique kind of cynicism to things, but a, kind, a sort of enthusiasm uh, for, his, for, his, for his own cism, and which is, but is clearly felt as a world-weary knowledge, and I think he, brings, he delivers that delightfully across in this. I'm going to say that this is my second least liked Ford film of the films that we've all explored and the main reason for it is they took Ford and they put him in a visual straitjacket. I see what you're saying how he does what he can in the near stagecoach level of claustrophobia of this small room but that's like 30% of the movie is in this room on a cargo ship at sea and all these all these amazing oceanographic views that he was able to deliver on a set, mind you, in The Long Voyage Home, is, none of it is evident here. It's, I don't know what happened if they chained this camera to the floor or something because not a pan, not oh, barely a pan or a, or a track can be found. He is so... All the visual creativity that he can bring to bear can only exist in that claustrophobic space, and it never opens up to me as a stage play. Well, it is, and it was a stage play to start, as Brad said, but to me, like, you don't need camera movement to have a beautiful composition, and these, to me, I thought were kind of subtle, understated compositions. Are they going to be put on a frame, in a frame in a museum? No, but the energy of the film didn't lag, the visual energy of the film didn't lag at all, despite the claustrophobia you're talking about. Hmm. 
Well, I guess we're not going to come to an agreement on the uh, entertainment value in front of the camera. But apparently there was quite a bit more drama behind the camera during the making of this film. We've often talked about Ford's bullying of actors. And uh, one thing that became clear very early on is that James Cagney was not one to fall into that category. Ford told him when he first got on set that they were sure to tangle asses, as he put it. (laughs) Not too long after, basically, Cagney called him out and said... You want to tangle asses? You're going to treat me like this? We're going to go at it right now. And Ford left him alone after that. The same cannot be said for Henry Fonda, whom Ford had made many films well earlier in their careers. But here their relationship turned out to be such a powder keg that at one point Ford literally punched Fonda in the jaw. He was then removed from the film So part of the film, how much I'm not sure, the director named uh, Mervyn Leroy was brought in to complete filming. So this is not 100% a John Ford film. So Ford was removed. Yes. That's really interesting. I wonder what producer or if, in fact, Fonda's incredibly irate agent. And it also ties in why. I wonder why... You decide to punch Fonda, even for bullying. That seems to get a little far for directors to knock a guy, try to knock a guy out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what led to it, but it, it must have been something uh, beyond the usual antics. Well, it, from what I can tell, there isn't a lot of information about whose shots are who's in the film. But I was able to find that apparently the issue between Fonda and Ford was how much comedy he was injecting into this movie because apparently the stage play is much darker Mm. and that it has it also had profanity which was unusual for the era and ford had cleaned that up fonda thought that he was shortchanging the drama of the piece and his character by you know like for instance there's a big section of this film that has like a bubble bath explode basically or the laundromat explodes and the ship is filled with bubbles which is just weird and to say the least is not a dramatic development there's not a lot of of, you know emotional heft to bubbles taking over the the ship and i think it's that sort of thing where he literally came to blows over it Mm, i guess he can only he was only going to restrict his expressions of profanity using nautical instruments Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, and there is I, the. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught the pillow that uh, the lemon character has on his bed, but the inscription is "While others sleep, we plow deep." So, <laughs> so that does not seem like a pillow. You know, if I'm if I'm <laughs> trying to woo someone, that's not a pillow I want to have out on my bed. But you sn- you sneak it in through another method, I guess. <laughs> so, in, in keeping with the whiplash tonal shifts of this period. Uh, We're about to head into a movie that has quite a different reputation.
That's a film that you folks listening in may have heard of called The Searchers in 1956. In this movie, John Wayne plays Ethan Edwards, a former Confederate soldier who never surrendered. When his family is massacred by a Comanche war party who kidnaps his young niece to raise as one of their own, Ethan sets out on a quote-unquote rescue mission that lasts for years, but his own bigotry and hatred may turn that mission into something much darker. Some might remember Wayne's anti-hero in Red River, but for most people around this time, Wayne was still the ultimate heroic figure uh, of the Western, and to see what he does with Ethan Edwards is really a, a revelation. This is a haunted character who is full of hate, full of bigotry, full of anger. At one point, when uh, they come across the, the body of, of, of a dead Indian who was uh, part of the, the war party, he shoots his eyes out, the corpse's eyes out, just because in their religion, it would force him to wander the earth and never uh, get into heaven. So this kind of themes of, of, of hatred, wandering, and, and, and the lack of community that, uh, that was so vividly made important in The Sun Shines Bright is contrasted in the wanderings of Ethan Edwards. Really nicely put, there is no community to be had in this version of the West. Monument Valley is scarcely more stark as it's used so effectively, and I think the filmmaking is used so effectively to give us something that I'm going to call like a cinematic weight to Ethan Edwards' journey. It's hard to put my finger on it, but through the different changes of the landscape, through the different seasons that they travel, and through how these shots are held, I feel a sense of gravity, uh, some or an inexorable pull of like what is clearly an obsession of Edwards. It has a bigger weight than the ship from uh, Mr. Roberts in how it's pulling everything in its wake. You, you guys see what I'm saying with that? For sure. There is a hint of community at the beginning because uh, Ethan does have a scene where he is reunited with his family many years after the Civil War had ended. And, and he's asked, well, well, where were you? And we never really do get an answer to that question, but we, we can guess. But this community is short-lived because they will all be massacred except for uh, the two daughters only one of whom will survive Mm, i i have this i get this sense on the movie about a weird combination of both the desolation of their where they travel about how like you were indicating brad that community and such source supply but also a sense of claustrophobia where this is one of the movie's most triumphant moments is to literally take the iconic status of Wayne and even more so than the, the films of Jimmy Stewart 
it's just the gravity of Wayne just curls. So his attitude towards Indians just feels darker and darker and more despairing and more ugly the more this film goes on. And it's a, I believe it's a great triumph of both what how Ford does in his direction and, and what Wayne does to make things, his attitudes get show to be more and more harsher. It's, it's really a triumph, as you said, of both writing, directing, and acting, because you have to have the willingness to put the racism up front. And that would ring hollow, I think, if Wayne didn't make you feel that racism's ugliness in all its facets throughout the, t- the course of the movie. Yes. His, um, I talked before uh, earlier about his vitality. And here it's just that ugliness given that, th- that life force is given to such an ugly end that it's really astounding to look at. And this is really, I think, the first step in what would eventually end up in revisionist westerns where you actually have to consider the racism and it's interesting because this film doesn't go all the way there if you were in charlottesville maybe you watch this movie and you agree with the way the wayne character acts and it's presented and left to the audience to ferret out what you're supposed to do with that information and I, th- I think I know clearly where Ford and Wayne are coming from, and they deserve credit for, for pre- presenting that. But it's a really harsh and tough presentation. There's no one in this movie. Part of the value of the desolation and how so much time is spent with, with Wayne and Jeffrey Hunter helping him out, being alone, is that there's no one out there in... It's the reverse of the promise of the West, in a way. The, uh, the promise of the West and the promise of Westerns is the idea that if in the Wild West, there are no rules, there are no constrictions, there are no like social order that will keep you down, and you get to be who you decide you are the person you want to be. And this is sort of the dark flip side on there, because there is no explicit person apart from Jeffrey Hunter who's condemning him. For this, but there's no one else in the world who will who will do it, and so his, like you said, Peter, his vitality is just sent on this dark path, and it feels so inexorable. That's a really interesting point, and and I I love the way it's portrayed visually because we see Monument Valley in a different way in this film than in any other Ford film. We see Monument Valley at first enclosed in a doorway. And then, instead of what we usually get, which are the long, scenic shots of Monument Valley, we are right next to the rocks. The rocks encase the characters and surround them. We're closer to the formations than we are in any other Ford film. And, you know, you talk about about who is condemning Ethan, and in a lot of ways, it's himself, but in other ways, it's the way Ford is filming him. Yeah. This movie is justifiably famous for two moments, which are bracketed by darkness on the edge of the widescreen frame. It's notable for how it starts like that, and and you see Monument Valley framed this way, and it's done this at the end. But 
monolith-like, that framing shows up in two other incredibly important parts of the movie. Because at one point, there's an Indian attack where he is he gets hit with an arrow. And he gets the arrow pulled out. But it is framed with the two rock formations bracketing in total darkness on either side. And when he catches up with Debbie at a certain point later, they're in a very similar canyon where it's darkness on either side. Mm -hmm. In that case, what you said about how Edwards, how it's a constriction that Ethan Edwards might be placing on himself is very, very apt. I think that really ties into those scenes very nicely. Well, Ethan Edwards is such an internalized character. He will occasionally explode into this, but so much Wayne conveys with with his eyes. And, and I think one of the elements that Martin Scorsese was most interested in how the loneliness of the character was expressed in this way. And, and Scorsese has said that part of his inspiration for the way he filmed uh, Taxi Driver was to use Ethan Edwards as kind of a, a proto-inspiration for Travis Bickle. And I really like the way the famous last shot is an example of his loneliness being conveyed. But there are a couple other scenes, too, when he's first with the family before the attack occurs. Um, it's clear that he has feelings for his uh, brother's wife, I believe. And you see him looking at her, and again, through a doorway, so that she's in one room and he's in another. Yep. So that, again, conveys the distance to you. And... He, she also is like folding up his clothes. You get the sense that maybe it was mutual. And I actually wondered, like, is there a possibility? And I don't know that I have any evidence for this or I've seen it. Is there any possibility of potentially Debbie's his daughter in this film? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's possible. But there's clearly, at the very least, the film sets up a longing, a mutual longing maybe between the mother and the Ethan character. Oh, definitely. I got, I got, I'll go further. I got the sense from how she folds the clothes that she, any sort of love that she has for her, her husband pales behind the, the, um, her feelings towards Ethan. And I don't think the movie necessarily even needs for there to be a, a plot development where, oh, maybe it is his daughter because it is about that even if even if it isn't even if mm -hmm. it's it's just her niece he's looking through the doorway at a family life that he can't have and so she may be the daughter that he ne that he wanted or the child he wanted but never got a chance to experience yeah wh whether it is his biological daughter or not it, it's still something that has eluded him exactly so the it, feeling it, is still there it, yes. it, it's just really if it were his daughter puts a finer point on it you know like mm -hmm. um but you're right i mean the theme remains the same and, and psychologically this loneliness makes his hatred uh, of the indian tribes even more intense because now debbie is part of a community that he abhors. And in his racist mindset, this soils her so completely that at various points in the movie, he'd rather see her killed 
then be a part of this community. And indeed, he wants to kill her himself. Yes. He's not there to rescue her mm-hmm. um, until, and we can talk about the end, where he does a 180 and does, in fact, rescue her and bring her back. And because of all the things we've been praising about Wayne's performance, that reversal ultimately feels hollow to me. Um, it's but a, yeah, it's a film technique that's that's known. I think Truffaut uh, uh, canonized it, or he had a statement called it. It's called lying. <laughs> that scene where he holds Debbie, he holds her in exactly the way, and in exactly in a moment where you feel he's going to strangle her, and then just says, "Oh, let's go home, Debbie." He also though holds her in the exact same way that he held her as a little child at the beginning. Of the film, yeah, he holds her up the way a father would a daughter, mm-hmm. or, a ma- or any relative would to a young child. Mm-hmm. But the movie up to that point has had absolutely no right. In fact, that's the huge value of the film is how dedicated it is to exploring the dark parts of Wayne's. It is so phenomenally brave and really shocking that a person who was such an iconic presence of goodness. And uh, a hero in so many films has scenes where he's m- going to shoot a young girl down and you completely believe it. Mm-hmm. You believe the darkness that he possesses. So in that scene, it co- is completely unearned. And it, it may be possible that Hollywood in 1956 just could not allow a scene where he where John Wayne literally kills this, this that's, young woman. Well, that's true, but yeah. I still would fault Ford because it's a decision that Ford made in, in filming that scene. Debbie could have met with a demise from her captors, or she could have had a situation where Jeffrey Hunter's character could have rescued her, and Ethan has to now deal with the fact that he can't exact this kind of familial revenge. There's other ways that could have done it, and Ford picked the one that would lead us to think the, the worst about him and then become heroic to think the best about him in within the span of, of a second. Well, we, that's we that's all on him. We don't necessarily think the best of him even when he chooses not to kill Debbie. It, it is not a heroic act not to kill the uh, child that you had been uh, contemplating killing for just about the entire movie. It is a backing off of the darkest possible place he could have gone. But I don't think Ethan is ever redeemed in the film. And I think that's why the final shot is so powerful of him standing outside the door holding his arm while one by one the members of who will be the family who will be the reconstructed community of this movie all go inside but he cannot go inside he is left to wander aimlessly because he he never will be part are part of this community and so yes he's spared the darkness of killing his niece, but he is still condemned at the end of the film. Right. And I don't think that scene works either Hmm. because of several reasons. First off, in addition to 
what we talked about on the in the instant in the instant change of heart. He says, "Let's go home, Debbie." Only they got a scene where he was not going to be home. <laughs> That's not a home for him. Right. So let us go home does not quite work. Also, for that to be true, you have to work on the idea that the society he is apart from is not totally full of racists who also hate Indians, which the movie does not make evident. Those people who are in that home could, and for by the way, for pretty justifiable reasons, since they're family members of the family who's been slaughtered by the Indians, they could very much hold Indians in just as much contempt as Ethan. Well, I, th- I think it's kind of understood throughout these films that the characters of the time would, I mean, after all, this is a period of basically war with the in- Indian nations. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's just kind of expected that that there's going to be this constant uh, conflict. So I, I don't think the, the difference between them and Ethan has anything to do with racism or the Indians, but about the willingness to, to form a community. Because remember, it's not a little thing that Ethan is a Confederate soldier who never surrendered. It, yeah. it, it means that, again, if we look at where the country has gone and is now, it's part of the part of a, a culture that never recognized the legitimacy of belonging to a nation. Yeah. And and I think the, the, this is such a complex character that the, those are only two of, of many factors that, that keep I, uh, Ethan isolated, some of which aren't even said out loud at all, but they're just brought about in, in Wayne's uh, haunted performance. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just want to jump in to say, before this conversation, I actually didn't buy the ending at all because I... The the quote unquote conventional way of approaching it was the was the idea that Ethan finds himself cast apart from polite society, and that's why I felt the essential falseness of it because I felt that quote unquote polite society could is not at all uh, necessarily have those a uh, different set of repugnant views than Ethan Edwards had displayed. However, from what we were talking about, now I do see a sense where it does work is what, how you talked about in his haunted performance. It's a psychological example. It's not that Ethan doesn't want to be in society. It's because he, the events that happened in his life show that he can't. To paraphrase Travis Bickle, he's the Civil War's lonely man. Right. <laughs> well, and I what I read in that scene, too, is an evolution of Ford because... We talked about in The Sunshine's Bright about how the end parade is meant to show all these pieces of America coming together and America only being the only place where this kind of reconciliation could happen. Here, I think what that final shot is showing is that society can't move forward with a man of the Confederacy with the with a man who has the Confederacy's hate inside him like mm-hmm. that. Society cannot move forward. And I, I, one of the things I disliked about the Sunshine's Bright is not realizing the vileness of the Confederacy. Here, I think that is presented, and it's demonstrated that you can't move forward with that inside you. But there's a final irony that I want you guys to consider because it isn't filmed in a way where you see the happy family 
enjoying their dinner, and then you see through a window Wayne walking up in the distance. It's the most starkest black bars. In other words, the society that is casting him out or where he feels he can't be a part of is so like not relatable to like normal human activity that I find that's really interesting that it's presented in such a abstract way, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's maybe it's as a, a, an example of his internal character that it's all foreign language that humanity as it's moved on is such a foreign language to him. Or maybe it's even saying that for all of his faults and his and and his qualities as a tracker and so on, this is a very nuanced performance of a complex character. And maybe it's saying for all his faults and virtues, there's just no place for him. There's just no place where he can fit. I think that's the theme. So uh, what is he searching for, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's it, and it's not just Debbie. Exactly. Yeah. Now there's there's so much greatness in the film. It's 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 rightly considered a, a classic, but there is an element of the film which doesn't work quite as well, which is Ford's bringing comic relief into the situation. That that's probably because he's working with so much darker material here than he usually does mm-hmm. that the comic relief sequences fall flat for me worse than they normally do in Ford. And films. I I feel that way myself. It's an ironic mark of the movie's quality and the way the movie so successfully gets us to feel these dark places that the comic level is can way more of an affront to what the movie's doing in a way that even like our the the earlier film Rio Grande which had like whimsical stuff about kids being put in danger <laughs> but that that was more that was more tolerable because the movie was alternating between these tones but this movie is so successful at that general tone that the attempts of leavening it with comic relief just come across as way more inappropriate for me. Well, I, to me, like the, the movie's biggest scene is not only that the comedy isn't very good, is that it spends a lot of time on those comic subplots. I mean, we've spent, you know, the last little bit talking about the Ethan Edwards part of it, but the comic relief wedding to be and brawls that occur at weddings, I would estimate they take up a third to a half of this film. Some, <laughs> That's how they feel. They feel that way. I don't think they quite do. <laughs> well, they, they, I mean, I, I would say at least a third. And, and like, they really, it's not like these short little sequences that go wrong. We're talking about whole sections of the film that don't work. And that's why, to me, there's a piece of it, part of this that's a masterpiece, and then there's a part of this that's flawed. And the bet, the good outweighs the bad by a, mar- a good margin here. But you can't watch this and not acknowledge just how god-awful those comedy sequences are. <laughs> and how non-necessary it is. How um, it, you look at those these wedding fights, and I don't think the intent was to get on Ethan Edwards' side of existential loneliness, but that's certainly what I felt. Like, oh, if that's society, I'm not, I'm not want any part of that rambunctious, fight-filled comic nonsense. And then there's the horrible treatment of the Indian woman who uh, mistakenly believes that she's married to the Jeffrey Hunter character, and she's treated absolutely uh, cruelly in the film for comic purposes. And 
uh, it's the low point for me as far as where this uh, where it goes off the rails. You, you mean you didn't get any laughs about when they like literally kick her down a hill? <laughs> yeah, not even a chuckle. Yeah. That section, I mean, yeah, that's a goddamn disaster. You can't say anything about that part of the film, which I'll refer to as the look part, because Mm -hmm. that's the name they hilariously give her, um, is just awful. I mean, there's no redeeming part of it whatsoever. When he was tripping on landmines and the sunshine's bright, here he's like really hugging it. Frankly, I, I think it's because this is how Ford operates. Ford always includes comic relief in in his films there may be one example later on in this discussion where it goes uh, quite awry as well but for me it, it's often something that well yeah maybe it's not the best part of the film but it, it can be incorporated in the film the the problem here is that there is no way to incorporate the comic relief stuff into the larger movie yeah, I would go even a step further. I don't think it would be very hard to do it successfully. And then you can do it in a way where you just willingly walk off a cliff too. And this movie does that. I mean, like it's one, it'd be one thing if you had like the best bits to struggle and to incorporate them, then you can have brain dead bits too. And that's what this film has. And those bits put the movie in an interesting place, I think, among Ford's work. Because... I can sort of see how how in some ways the film is greater and a greater achievement and a braver achievement than what Stagecoach is, although I personally find Stagecoach to be a perfect movie. Every element of Stagecoach, every character and ca- and camera movement and setting and, and placement of lighting works perfectly. But what it's working perfectly for is not as deep and doesn't go through so many levels that The Searchers does at its best. And so even though there are these scenes which which really fall far short of the great moments of The Searchers, I think what makes The Searchers great still pulls it through to the Pantheon. The uh, Searchers is undoubtedly flawed step forward but a step forward nonetheless, and one that many films we love today wouldn't be here without. The Last Hurrah, released in 1958, follows the final campaign of Mayor Frank Skeffington, played by Spencer Tracy. The mayor is a veteran gladhander and old-fashioned politician who values the personal touch. With the advent of television and the mass media, Skeffington will have to secure his coalition and face off against old money as he faces a new kind of challenger. Uh, I think we these days often feel that political campaigns go on too long and have some less than fun moments. And I would say that this movie ac- accurately captures a political campaign. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's not terrible, but it's clumsily structured and overlong and 
There are some things to recommend about it, but uh, not going in the Pantheon. So it's, it's so you don't think it's terrible, huh? No. <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> I had said earlier here about how another Ford movie was the second least pleasant experience of uh, watching Ford films. This is not only the first by a mile, it's probably my top 50 of all-time unpleasant film experiences. Wow. Really? Now, I, I want to hear this, because I can't imagine anything in this film being that offensive. <laughs> you know how people who are fans of baseball kind of hate the film The Natural because it's so damn over the top in how showing this one baseball player does everything in this magically, ridiculously overdone way. And like when he is having a problem in his love life, even the team is fumbling balls because everything is so responsible for because of this guy. Resulting in Roger Ebert saying in an epic rant about how he disliked the movie, he said, I can't believe I sat here for two hours to watch a movie about how apparently the son of our Lord and Savior has come down on earth to play baseball. <laughs> well, imagine if that happens for politics. And that's what makes this movie so uniquely terrible. There are other films about politics, and one of the values that film can do is... That film has the ability for us to expand our understanding, to go let us think about the subjects of these films in new ways. And there are many fine political films like The Candidate or Ides of March or Spielberg's Lincoln, which do this and let you, after you see the movie, you get an increased appreciation for the political process. The Last Hurrah is the exact opposite. Everyone watching this pile of schlock upon, like, all you need is St. Spencer Tracy to go and help save politics from the evils of television is dumber about politics, is less informed, is less insightful, and is more uh, willing to succumb to stupid incivitness after watching what ha what happens in this movie. Wait, wait, so you don't, like, the class stuff wasn't... Okay, so let me let me say a little bit about it. Like, I, I do... There were certain things about this film that, like, I'm a liberal, and as long, if we had a politician like Spencer Tracy's character today that was at least willing to directly fight against the moneyed interests, like, I would love that. And the class stuff in this film, however much it is kind of schlocky, it, it at least has like an authentic, I'm sure Ford really feels that way. You know what I mean? Like it has not this authenticity to it. So you, you, you didn't get any, like, I'm sure Ford wishes politics were <laughs> like that, but unfortunately he presents this as a given in this film upon the quote unquote good old days of political backroom dealings. Yeah. I think you're, you're hitting on it with good old days. I don't hate the film. I don't particularly like the film either. It's kind of a meh for me. But what I think it's trying to do is create this sense of nostalgia 
for something that nobody has nostalgia for, which is the old the old style machine uh, politician, which most people are pretty glad are are mostly gone outside of some circles. Mm-hmm. But there, I think there are some interesting themes that the film touches upon, and the big problem is it doesn't follow through on any of them. Mm. Uh, there, There is this kind of end of an era for a particular kind of politics that attaches to Spencer Tracy being another one of these John Ford surrogates as this kind of powerful figure of great charisma who finds himself a man out of his time. And also the the way technology is used. Probably uh, the best scene in the film is when we see his uh, op- the opposition candidate try to film a, film a television commercial and, and nobody really is really clear how the newfangled TV, politics of TV is going to work. I, I laughed at that part. I thought that was funny. That that gag and the gag of the uh, rich man's son being awarded fire commissioner in this completely dopey picture of him being taken in, in his fireman's outfit, uh, those were the two bits I laughed at in this movie. I actually laughed at those pictures are, uh, as well. Something about Ford managed to get the pure goofiness in a photo frame of the police commissioner guy. And then there's pictures of the uh, would-be rival who's this young, stupidly grinning, neophyte dope person. And he's always always has his arms folded and nodding slightly. And here's him graduating from college, and he has a diploma nodding slightly. And here's him as a burgeoning politician. He's got his arms folded (laughs) and with the exact same stupidly bland expression on his face. When Ford turns absolutely bitter upon uh, the newfangled television way of broadcasting, that is where the movie gets some interesting elements. Like, my favorite character, in fact, is in there, whereas, as they're trying to film this kind of proto-Good Morning America feel-good segment, which is going wrong because everyone is fake in a very particularly broad yet dryly sarcastic way, they can't shut up this barking dog. (laughs) Just can't, the dog just can't stop barking. And as these people are trying to blandly intone upon it, what how they're just great people, they can't help but angrily have their eyes dart towards the direction of, of this dog who's obliviously barking away. And got, and with my favorite character of the movie is that dog. Well, I do think there is one great scene in the film, at least on, on a visual level, and uh, it, it is after uh, Spencer Tracy's character loses the election. Walks through the park? And yes, he's walking through the park as his opponent is holding this parade. And just on a visual level, now, now th- th- this film, which is one of the few that Ford does set in contemporary for, for 1958 times, uh, is usually not really a visual feast it's it's pretty straight on um filming of faces but this one scene uh captures 
a lot the way uh, Tracy is thoughtfully uh, wandering and taking into account something he thought could never happen while all this to do is, is shown in the far background. Yeah, that is a flat out beautiful tracking shot of him walking away from all the life he had before basically and to be honest it would have been the movie would have been a lot stronger if it just ended there Mm -hmm. because what follows it is literally like a death scene which lasts half a fucking hour at least like it it just goes on and on and on spencer tracy does his ellie mcgraw impersonation of a love story (laughs) but well that's not fair to ellie mcgraw because the whole idea, Roger Ebert also popularized a concept called Ellie McGraw disease. It's a disease where you become more beautiful and more of a wonderful human being the sicker you technically get. But the number one problem of this film is that there is no change from Spencer Tracy, who is to a sickeningly repulsive level treated as the greatest human being to ever walk the fucking earth who is bestowed upon us by the Lord and Savior to be the great politician. Especially once his hair went white, he has just become this travelocity gnome of twinkle in the eye, charmingly pugnacious force of what's good, all that's good and right in the world. And the movies time and again are just show, well, well, what does Spencer Tracy think? He will set us to do the right thing. But this movie is worse <laughs> because it moves time and again. The plot goes to incredibly contrived directions to show, no, no, he's awesome. Like, for example, there's a part where he walks in and stares down the evil financiers straight up to fund an orphanage. <laughs> and then he visits a funeral scene and has a meeting with his wife, with the dead person's wife, to give her a thousand dollars. Well, you know, that one part of that scene that was funny was, though, that they keep saying, like, they keep talking about this guy in death, but they're like, no one really liked him, did they? And they're like, no, he was an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't really blame this on Spencer Tracy. The, these are kind of script problems. Martin Sheen is trying to capture a little bit of this Spencer Tracy quality when he plays uh, Jed Bartlett uh, on the West Wing. But the difference is he has an endlessly fascinating script to work off of where, where, where the things he's saying matters. And Ford really doesn't care about politics per se. He more cares about the transition away of this, uh, of who he views of, of as this great man and his way of being a great man, which is the kind of glad handing and backroom deals that he probably would encounter quite a bit in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Tracy does not get to show many notes here, but I, I think that's more in the script than in Tracy. And just it's, as. No, sorry, um, go ahead, Peter. Uh, no, I was just going to say, as a note uh, on the script problems, one thing I didn't understand at all is why Jeffrey Hunter is in this movie. <laughs> he, they use him as like the audience surrogate into the world on the pretense that he's going to be writing an article that I don't think he ever actually writes. Like no, th- This film was, was actually uh, cut a bit by the studios, so there's somewhere 
uh, 20 minutes missing, and apparently that was a bit of uh, Jeffrey Hunter's arc. Okay. But but as as we're left with, he is literally audience surrogate boy. Yeah. He has ironically the role that has been played many a time in real life by politicians' wives. Hmm. His entire purpose in the movie is to stand slightly behind Spencer Tracy and then nod in affirmation of the glory of what Spencer Tracy's character has said, and also to be a contrast to Spencer Tracy's ne'er-do-well, idiot, zoot-suit-wearing clown prince of a kid who would rather play golf than um, uh, vote for his old man. And not not to mention his cadre of yes-men led by this little guy named Ditto, who is, uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell us Ditto. what you think about Ditto, Al. Ditto. The, the, the spawn of Ernest Borgnine and James <laughs> Coco. He is, a, he is one of these characters that is a walking reaction shot. Just... Uh, like the, even the fact that he keeps calling his hat a hamburger is just so... Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned the Spencer Tracy character's son. That role is so out of place in this movie, especially in the half-hour-long death scene where he shows up. You might as well have Carrot Top wander into that scene. I mean, honestly, it's so far off. That, I mean, it could have yeah. it could have worked just because the idea that his son was such a disappointment to him that he'd want to turn to Jeffrey Hunter as more of a surrogate son could have worked if it weren't one of the many, many unexplored dramatic strands that are just left hanging there. There, yeah. there is no dramatic strands. On top of just, just the sheer intent of this film, it film has no drama because there is no stakes whatsoever. It's just a succession of scenes of, of Tracy doing righteous things, and in the movie's most curdling turn, he loses the election... And but since it's Spencer fucking Tracy, he has to be the most magnanimous politician of all time. Perfectly happy to go and credit all of his voters. Like, again, this is makes people stupider because because among other things, he was doing all these chicanery earlier in the movie to say, oh, I gotta save the orphanage. I gotta help all these people by getting elected. So even if all you were thinking about is your selfless record of service, you gotta at least be a little mad. Instead, but the movie never does that because Spencer Tracy must never be presented in anything less than a saintly manner. So you have actually a scene where two two of his flunkies who were nothing but accommodating all the way up until this end part, they just start arguing. Or they nearly come to blows. Why? So Spencer Tracy can bust in and say, cut it out. We've lost the election, and now I will make my statement. In the same way, there's a character in the movie who is the father of Jeffrey Hunter's wife, who hates Spencer Tracy because of his clear lower-class origins, and he's obviously meant to be a snooty snob. And he gets a chance to visit him on his deathbed for the sole purpose to saying, Oh, I hope you'll be able to reflect on your sins if you make it to heaven. Just so Spencer Tracy can go, like hell I will. (laughs) This is just the most freaking self-righteous, self-sentimental, bloated reach around for Spencer Tracy on a result of a a subject that deserves so much more consideration that 
I found this an, a, basically an atrocity. So Al suggests giving it a pass. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, yes, it, I grade it as a miss. So did, did you buy the uh, Blu-ray of this? <laughs> I, I heard it had 30 more minutes with the dog. Yeah, the dog I, 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 I think you're out, you're and, out, out looking for the 20 minutes of and, Jeffrey Hunter. I and think. I want to also just quickly add that Jeffrey Hunter is kind of that earlier generation's versions of Casper Von Diem from Starship Troopers. He's a blandly handsome guy with very little personality, but there's a moment during the funeral scene where, of course, unlike Spencer Tracy's son, he has a moment where he breaks down in, no, in, in sadness, and the result just looks like his lip, lower lip is vibrating. <laughs> and it's so really, really badly done. Well, let's see if Jeffrey Hunter fares any better in the next Ford film we'll discuss. That's Sergeant Rutledge from 1960. which stars Woody Strode as First Sergeant Braxton Rutledge, an African-American Buffalo soldier accused of raping and killing a white girl. As this courtroom drama unfolds, he is defended by Jeffrey Hunter in a case that delves deep into both military tradition and racial prejudice. So were you guys able to handle the truth of what happens in this movie? Ah, you, you found a connection. <laughs> Uh, we should probably place this in some some context because in 1960, uh, having an African American protagonist was actually pretty unusual. The uh, only person doing such a thing would be uh, Sidney Poitier, whose career really shot up only two years earlier with uh, the Defiant Ones. So we're at the very beginning of this kind of movie. I think that this is a testament to John Ford's progressivism for his time. The way he and Woody Strode bring this character of Sergeant Rutledge to life. I, I agree. I, I think this is a notable film. It's not entirely a success. Uh, it lays it on a bit thick, I'll say that. As much as I agree with its politics and its point of view, there are hero shots of Woody Strode in this movie that are flat-out ridiculous, that you would laugh at if mm -hmm. they pop up. I mean, he's, like, literally standing with his, like, hands on his hips, and, yeah. like, the wind is blowing, and, like... And, and even the, the theme song fits yeah. in uh, Captain Buffalo. Yeah. Which, right. uh, again, for, for those who don't know, the Buffalo Soldiers were the... Uh, black regiments of uh, the U.S. Uh, military uh, at, in the late 1800s. Yeah. So this is very much an, uh, an indoor film for Ford. A lot of his, what we know is the magnificent filmmaking he's capable of, isn't really here. It's, it's shot very straight on as, as a courtroom movie. Some of the more dramatic touches are the uh, transitions from the courtroom into flashback, uh, which which put the puts the characters in shadows, but I do think Woody Strode is fantastic as as Rutledge. He has such a military demeanor 
every move he makes is deliberate. He realizes the kind of trouble he's in and the trouble he could be in at any point in the movie because of the racial prejudices of the time, yet he never ceases to be a soldier. And you see that in every expression and every move he makes. The movie doesn't really do him justice. I think it's it's a fairly straightforward, pretty good courtroom drama, but I think it, it, it's Woody Strode's presence that takes this a level above. I 100% agree. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, an unexpected moment in the movie that kind of brought tears to your eye. And I had one here. Huh? And it's where uh, <clears throat> Strode is on the stand and he's being asked why he didn't run away when he had the chance to. And he talks about what the military has given him. And he and he chokes up to the point where he says, my self-respect. And it's just such a powerful mo- uh, moment in this film. That would be hokey coming in and out in a different way from a different actor, I think. And the fact that it has the emotional punch that it does is a credit to him. And it shows on the value how he puts on himself and not just of the fellow people of his regiment in the army, but just the fact of his army use is something that defines him and he's found and he's found value from it. He ultimately, he said the reason I I wouldn't run away because if I run away, I just be another Mm -hmm. kind of person. And, and he delivers that really, really well as, as he does, throughout in not just illuminating these issues of race, but also providing an effective mystery. Because while you may suspect he was not responsible for the crimes he'd been charged with, you still wonder what happened to him. And mm-hmm. that requires a level of mystery from the first stroke to deliver that I think he was effective uh, uh, on doing as well. Less effective is the, the uh, banter between... Casper Van, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Hunter, <laughs> and and this slimy, snooty pro, uh, prosecutor <laughs> who are all, all but like running at different parts of the table to pound on them to say, no, sir, no, no, gentlemen, gentlemen. Um, it that gets quite a bit, quite a bit corny, especially as Hunter's jaw gets steelier and steelier the more he finds this is an affront towards uh, justice. Yeah, the movie, the movie wants to melodramatically make its point, which it underlines uh, vigorously. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, because we're not quite so far along in Hollywood's portrayal of black people, uh, Woody Strode is not allowed to be front and center uh, as a character, and a lot of time is spent with uh, with Jeffrey Hunter, who isn't just the lawyer, but is also the uh, basically the, the soldier who captured him and, and brought him in and came to sympathize with him, and his relationship with the, the character played by Constance Towers. They have a bit of flirtation in the, in the beginnings of a love story, so there, there's kind of a lot to distract from the main points of the the movie. Yeah, the fact that at the end of the movie, again, spoiler spoiler alert, um, Jeffrey Hunter's lawyer character has freed Rutledge. He's been proven innocent of the charges. And what do we end with? Not a scene of Woody Strode's Rutledge out in freedom or anything. We end with the white savior character kissing the girl he's got at the end. And it's just 
it was a really poor choice to end the film mm-hmm. on that note. Um, because it really like, it, it was, why are we watching this? And then the movie's over. There's no, it doesn't go back to Strode at all. doesn't do anything. And it was really an odd choice and a poor one that had been in contrast to what the film had been up to at that yeah, point. Yeah. That's a, yeah. The really unfortunate aspect in the idea of like, who's going to, Oh, well, who's, should you care about here? And like a movie, um, came out a couple of years ago called the impossible about the horrible tsunami that if it was in Indonesia. And the entire point of the movie is how did it affect all the white people who were on vacation? Hmm. Oh, that was really tragic. Yeah. How, how they were put into trouble. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it feels now, especially nowadays, it feels very, very inappropriate. And I'm, I'm sorry that whether through a combination of Ford's intent and then the studio's intent of in towards making it a movie for a, a big audience, they felt the need to, jury rig this this white person to see how he approves and not and more more unfortunately that woody stroh doesn't get a chance yeah. a moment for his vin for for his vindication yeah so i mean sergeant rutledge is a step forward but it's it's kind of baby steps forward i say one interesting thing at the end because the movie is concerned about um a white woman is raped a white young woman is raped and at the end, you learn the identity of her rapist, and he has a courtroom breakdown saying, like, essentially these things you hear even today, like, oh, well, she led me on with the way she walked and these things she wore and all this sort of stuff. And it was surprisingly direct about th- that kind of masculine view of women. Like, that was stated so baldly that I found that interesting. Now, I think that might be partially also a result of the previous year's uh, Anatomy of a Murder, Mm -hmm. uh, an amazing Otto Preminger film that was famous for dealing with the the sexuality of Mm -hmm. its courtroom case in a far franker way than had been allowed previously. Yeah, that that could be. For me, that ending was just a trapdoor. I was really liking a lot of what this movie had to offer. Right down to the fact that Strode's character is exonerated because they found someone else was suspected of doing the mm-hmm. crime. And then you just decide to have yet another crazy twist, which would, I guess, cause the young teenage uh, Christopher Nolan to go, yes, brilliant, brilliant, an unnecessary fifth act twist. <laughs> but the way the guy is so demonstrative, like pounding on his own chair, yeah. is so ridiculously <laughs> overwrought. And then to end with having the main judge's dithering wife go, oh, Johnny, no. <laughs> That's so wrong. It is uh, a sad trombone of courtroom drama endings. I have to confess that I enjoyed the comic bits with the judge's wife. The old ladies. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that part. <laughs> these I, little these little biddies, one of whom is the judge's wife, who don't realize that they have to abide by courtroom decorum as well. <laughs> well, the, the best part of it is the bailiff's look on the bailiff's face when he keeps after escorting him in and out of the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> and he just has this look on his face like, oh, not again. <laughs> yeah, the subtleties actually can be really, really funny at times. And I found the banter between the judge and his four associates judges was was really really nice especially how in certain heightened moments of the trial he asked for some quote-unquote water which is really some sort of (laughs) alcohol that his that his trusted aide gives him to get his heart started to get his yeah to get his heart started and they take a break 
uh, from to uh, have emotion settle down, but in reality to get through a really quick card game. <laughs> and in a, in a, one, just one of the best little details, plot details I've seen in a Ford movie, they're uh, they're talking about a finer point of law, and then he the judge says to his assistant, "Hey, this isn't a law book. This is a Confederate law book." And he and his assistant says, "Look inside the cover." And inside the cover, it says, the, in a very interesting social jab. Oh, this source of military codes is basically 100% bought out the Confederate Book of Law. <laughs> yeah, so. it's, it's equ- equating the way Africans Americans are treated in the current post-Civil War yeah. as they were in the Civil exactly, War. Exactly, but it just slides right into yeah. the comic B. Really nice bit of subtle humor from that. From a homicidal bitch that goes down in every kitchen to determine who will serve and who will eat. Wells of disappointment where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert here in the desert far away Democracy is coming to the USA And speaking of law, that is going to be the front and center subject of our next film. Jimmy Stewart plays the revered Senator Rance Stoddard in 1962's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He tells his story in flashback as he first enters the town of Shinbone as a naive young lawyer terrorized by Lee Marvin's bandit Liberty Valance. John Wayne is Tom Donovan, a practical and experienced gunman who takes Stoddard under his wing. As modernity encroaches on the Old West, will it be ruled by the gun or by the law? From the description, it's almost like Terry Southern, the writer for Dr. Strangelove, had uh, a hand in naming some of these people (laughs) uh, who get so close to having these symbolic names. The idea of the murdering thug being called Liberty fascinates me, I have to admit, as does the fact that Jimmy Stewart's character's full first name is Ransom. Mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa, what's that stuff about? And maybe nothing, but but I found that very fascinating. This is my favorite John Ford movie. I think it is so full of interesting themes, questions, ideas that applied when it was made and are still just as important as we continue to decide who we are as a country, all while uh, managing to be a phenomenal entertainment that, that, that I was enthralled with through every scene. Even the pot-slinging, apron-wearing uh, serving a patron scenes with Jimmy Stewart? It does bring up the one issue with the film, which I, I believe ends up not being an issue at all, but people have rightly pointed out that John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart are far too old to be playing the characters they're playing. When we get to the flashbacks, Jimmy Stewart is supposed to have just graduated law school, yet he's clearly a man uh, approaching 60. But what we gain 
from that is John Ford's use of these actors as archetypes. At this point in film history, nobody embodies integrity, idealism, and goodness more than the screen persona of Jimmy Stewart, despite him spending most of the 50s trying to make films that undermine this persona, that is the persona that he ha- has made vivid in, in, in moviegoers' memories since he was Mr. Smith in 1939. At the same t- time, we've talked throughout this podcast about what John Wayne has done, how when he's not playing against type, he is absolutely embodying the American spirit of the self-made, tough man of the West, the ultimate cowboy. So yeah, they're too old for their roles. But no other bit of casting is going to bring these archetypes to such a powerful level as having these two actors at their disposal. Yeah, they're too old. The... You're meant to feel their iconic personas through the length of the wrinkles that they have as they play a young lawyer and a um, up and an upstart um, gunfighter. <laughs> a lot of it dwells from the fact that audiences for his liberty violence had been experienced these two guys for at least two decades worth of said personas. It shares with the searchers the way how the more you know about what John Wayne is supposed to be like, what the John Wayne persona is like, the more fascination it comes to see how that gets abandoned. Right. These are subverted, but in incredibly subtle ways. Before we go into how that happens, I also want to bring in kind of the third part of this, which is uh, Lee Marvin, who, as... uh, an early role as as Liberty Valance is an absolute force of nature. He he is extremely big in this movie, but I think he's doled out in the right amounts or and I mean maybe pushes the limit of it a little bit, but you need a big villain in this movie and he definitely delivers that. There's a scene where a, a newspaper man who has gotten on the wrong side uh, of Liberty Valance uh, is going into his office uh, quoting Shakespeare, the uh, universal uh, John Ford sign of uh, civilization. He goes in into the dark office uh, where we only see him, and, and, and he lights his lamp. And in this absolutely magnificent shot, Liberty Valance and his gang are revealed to be standing right there over him. And the expression on Lee Marvin's face, I tell you, Lee Marvin's been dead for 30 years, and I'm still afraid of the man. (laughs) And we should mention his gang includes Lee Van Cleef, who just standing there being Lee Van Cleef is enough to give me a nightmare. Oh, he was taking notes. Right, and the uh, (laughs) ultimate lackey... uh, uh, performance of Struther Martin as the other uh, as the other stooge to uh, help in um, Mr. Um, Valance's uh, evil deeds. Yeah, Brent, when you say force of nature, I do agree with you on that, and I think that's 
slightly a bit to the movie's detriment. Because I like the idea of... Maybe it's because I'm responding to the idea of the name. But I really think one of the most perfect three-person dynamics that's been shown in film was the three, was the three main characters for the Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. Because each one of them have a different way of approaching the world, and the, and the genius of that movie is how each one of those finds themselves tested and found, and found wanting. Here, Wayne is that archetype you were saying for the, the can-do spirit, and, and Stuart is, in a way, similar to um, not just like Llewellyn from No Country, but also Ed Exley from L.A. Confidential. He's a guy who stubbornly believes in the rule of law, will go and help him out, that law will go and save him, and he gets and this position gets him subject to abuse. But I found Lee Marvin basically just a one-note ogre monster. He was not a, he did not register as a or as not just not human, but not having any human components whatsoever. His job is to jump out of a, a of a trapdoor and go boo at people. Well, in a film of archetypes. He is that. I mean, if we're going to discuss how the Old West becomes the modern world, how civilization happens, and whether it's going to happen through law or not, you need a, an, an opposing force, something that represents the opposite of civilization, this savagery. And so, yes, Lee Marvin is a monster and, but I, I think I use that word only as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do think the movie, and like as I said, I think it pushes a little bit. As I mentioned earlier with, with Victor McLaughlin, with someone that big, you have to be careful about where you use him. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie is right on that edge of giving us too much of Lee Marvin, Mm -hmm. but it stays on the right side of it. Um, But yeah, man, there's a danger that he can become hokey, I think. He's just too big. And he doesn't dominate the film because he just doesn't have as much screen time as we focus on the relationship between Wayne and Stewart, which is like watching these two masters deliver dialogue to each other is is, is a, just a grand experience but they really get into their philosophies and this is the, the real question because they both have the same goal they both want to live in a world where liberty valence doesn't rule the streets but they have different paths to that solution for john wayne it's the gun you can't get anywhere without the gun. Jimmy Stewart, on the other hand, holds up his law book and says, no, it's got to be about the law. Isn't that a variation of discussions we have and uh, about politics in America to this very day? And then, if that's not fascinating enough, we uncover the hypocrisy in both of these characters where they might not even completely believe what they're preaching about how to preserve democracy. You, you just use the word preaching. And I think if I had to say one of the things I find fault in this movie is that there's a lot of speechifying mm. in it. I feel like it, it's this 
beautiful film that's weighed down a bit by long-winded dissertations about the democratic process. <laughs> um, I do wish like it had t- shown us more than told us. Because I think I, I entirely agree with you that everything the film is talking about is important. It's addressed in a thoughtful way. It's just I wish like it had been dramatized rather than discussed. And I think the beautiful part of the film is when it does reach its resolution is that we're shown it without at the toward the end without it being evident. Um, and then we're left to figure out what that means for ourselves. And the movie nails that at the end. It's just up to that point. It's been pretty long-winded. And we should deliver a, a spoiler warning. Uh, if you don't already know who shot Liberty Valance, you soon will. The answer is Liberty Valance. <laughs> surprise, and a surprise to everyone. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it, Brad, would ma- you made a great point on how it is an act of straight-up murder by John Wayne in an attempt to avoid Liberty Valance shooting Jimmy Stewart. That's a fascinating move, because Jimmy Stewart has already shown that he had abdicated his belief in the rule of law and the belief of democracy. Because he does, in fact, get a gun and try to train himself to use it. Exactly. Not very good, but he tries. Mm-hmm. In that, And then Wayne, in against any sort of code for how you should behave in the West just shoots him from a hidden position. In a really interesting detail, he has a, a friend of his, played by Woody Strode, who tosses him the gun, which he uses to shoot, and he tosses back. A weird, maybe a weird way of saying how, well, I'm going to go cross the line in this, in this moment. But ironically, that moment has a wonderful sense of irony because... It sort of damns both characters by getting them kind of something that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart wants to be a big shot lawyer. He wants to go and be able to control things using the law. Right? And he gets to do that. But at the back of some other action. And in a similar way, John Wayne wants to make his own way. He builds his house in the distance and so on. And he does by being totally alone as a result of what happens at this incident. Right, because there's a, a low-key uh, love triangle also involved in that uh, John Wayne's uh, girl at the start of the movie, uh, Vera Miles, also takes a liking to Jimmy Stewart, who teaches her and actually uh, others in the town how to read. He, open, he opens up a school, another sign of civilizing. And... Uh, again, I, I I think it's so much more interesting to look at these characters as symbols rather than just who they are as people, even, even though it functions on both levels, mm-hmm. because you, you then have to start to ask, well, we've seen basically the way they've handled the killing of Liberty Valance in this unjust way, in this way that involves murder and lies and then we ask well do we want a world where liberty valence still uh runs things Mm -hmm. because the result of this is jimmy stewart's ascension into politics and the uh, territory's ascension into statehood and so when he returns to Shinbone as an old man, as this respected figure 
who everybody loves and, and adores, we see the presentation of the West finally tamed, but we also have seen the ugly sausage making that made that happen. Well, so it, true. It's not a coincidence that when he gets his nomination, it has him storm out through swinging doors, and in a great shot, the doors swing really wide and swing back, then swing forward again to show Wayne in the exact same position, right in the perfect, right in the perfect rhythm, showing how these two components combine together to make the West, quote-unquote, civilized. Well, well, the beautiful part of this movie, I think, is what it does to those two characters. Because similar to The Searchers, in this movie, we're left with a world that John Wayne can't be a part of. Mm -hmm. And he's left behind. In order for the world to move on, he has to be left behind. And his character basically burns out. He burns his own home down. He becomes a drunk. He stops wearing a gun. He basically... His life, he doesn't die, but his life is over at that point. He dies a poor man buried in a cheap pine box. And that's what advancement cost him. It cost him his his wife, his future family, all that. And on a surface level, the Jimmy Stewart character got what he wanted. He got, he got the law to succeed. He got to... Um, civilize the West, as you said. But what's beautiful about the movie is it's very end scene where we've been presented with, we've been allowed to see the vanity of the Stuart character and we see his long winded and he comes into town like a you know, kind of speechifying politician holding his lapels like a very stately gentleman. Mm-hmm. And the last scene of the film is he's leaving town and saying, oh, I might retire and come back to live here. And a porter tells him, oh, I'll get you whatever you want. Nothing's too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance. And what that does is undercut all that vanity and realize that everything that he built is because of the sacrifice of this other man. And And at the same time, you understand that that sacrifice had to happen and that the the veneer of civilization that Jimmy Stewart is so proud to stand on has this ugliness beneath it. And not only is that um, uh, shown at a societal level, it's shown through these two characters. And that is just a flat out beautiful ending. It points out, the course of the movie points out the essential vampirism of what Stewart does in politics. Mm -hmm. It's vampire politics. It's not that John Wayne's character is left behind. He's extinguished because his glory, his heroism, his qualities just got absorbed to be put into be processed and got transferred to to help the fortunes of Jimmy Stewart. Now, if these themes weren't so vividly presented in the way you guys are pointing out, it's then really hit home with uh, the film's most famous line. The, these themes are, are, are put into words. As a newspaper man says the line, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. This sums up not just so many of the themes of, of this movie, but a lot of Ford's themes and a lot of what we live with every day print the legend. We saw how it applied to, to Fort Apache, the first film we discussed in this part of the podcast. So 
this is a film that is unafraid to call out everyone's hypocrisy, even when we benefit from that hypocrisy. And nicely said. And the idea of printing the legend fits in something that has been on Ford's mind throughout of how he uses in sentiment and how he explores myth. Where is the truthfulness that we get from legends and the myths and our sentiments? And where is the thing that we need from those myths in order for us to go on, in order for the world that we live in to go on? And this theme resonates so much that, and, and frankly, I didn't even notice this until my last watch of Liberty Valance, that it's somewhat echoed in a more modern blockbuster movie, The Dark Knight. <laughs> no kidding. Look at The Dark Knight in comparison to Liberty Valance with Batman basically being the John Wayne character and Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face, being Jimmy Stewart. Uh, spoilers for The Dark Knight Ahead. Because Batman realizes that if Gotham is, is going to be safe, it will need a hero that it can trust and that can be constantly there in the open, not hiding in the shadows, which Harvey Dent, as the idealistic, heroic district attorney, presents himself as. So when Harvey Dent becomes Two-Face and basically loses that aura of goodness and heroism, Batman realizes that what has to be protected is that image, not who the character is, but what he represents to Gotham. So the Dark Knight ends with him sacrificing himself, becoming a criminal on the run, and in the world of this film, losing his own legacy so that this other legacy that's more sustainable can be the one that survives and moves the community forward, which is the exact same set of thematics we're dealing with in Liberty Valance. Oh, wow, man, that, that, that's awesome. Uh, maybe, no, maybe Nolan borrowed from uh, uh, this Ford film way better than he borrowed the last second twist from Sergeant Rutledge and <laughs> too many of his other films. <laughs> in fact, I'll go even a little further. You know what? I'll even go a little further than that. And Because what's the Joker in The Dark Knight? He's an agent of chaos. He actually makes that explicit in The Dark Knight. But maybe that's what Lee Marvin's Liberty Valance is supposed to be in that film. Just an agent of what happens if there's no order or there's no heroism. You know, that's interesting. If you look at the word liberty, we always look at it as a, as a, as a positive, as something to, to, to strive for. But in the wrong hands, the word liberty can mean complete freedom, freedom to do anything. Yeah. Anarchy. <laughs> if yes. you right, right. If you allow anything for anything, you stand for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love that the film leaves us to live on with the knowledge of the truth behind the legend, and the audience has to acknowledge that. And as you said, we acknowledge it today. Yep. And so we will wrap up our discussion of John Ford with his final western, Cheyenne Autumn. 
This film was released in 1964 and follows the destitute and starving Cheyenne tribe as they embark on a journey from a government reservation to their ancestral homeland. They are pursued by the U.S. Army, led by a sympathetic captain, played by Richard Widmark, and helped by a Quaker schoolteacher, played by Carol Baker. Fort Apache introduced the idea that we could side with the Indian side in, in, in the various uh, wars of the time, but we never got to really know Indian characters. Now we finally do, and, and, and basically our protagonists are Indians or, or white people who are sympathetic and assisting the Indian cause. Now we're still not at, at modern levels of, uh, of progressivism. Uh, the uh, prominent Indians in the film are played by Hispanic actors. And we still are following white protagonists most of the time. So 1964, things are changing. They're not changing as, as fast as we would like and certainly not to the, to the point where we want to be. But if we look at the history of film, look at the history of the, the Western, it, it's hard to underestimate how John Ford giving us Cheyenne Autumn really cements the changing of ideas in the Western. And his own ideas and perspective in particular, what the searchers did so effectively of using the very techniques of filmmaking to expose the desolation and isolation of Ethan Edwards' character, here I think it's really effective at showing across an entire society of the Cheyenne. I would just love the first part of this movie just by sequences of the Cheyenne as they go through the processions to go in formation for a long-awaited meeting and just how they assemble and how they stay for hours in, in the hot sun as they await this gathering. And you just feel the weight of the years that these generations of uh, the Indian culture had to, had to deal with just by how they're presented. What you guys said is true. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I think the only thing interesting about this film is its intent. What Ford is trying to accomplish deserves all the accolades you just give, gave it. Unfortunately, the execution of it is a bloated mess. This film is two hours and 40 minutes long. It's an ensemble movie with exactly zero interesting characters. It has one of the most disastrous comic interludes in the history of cinema <laughs> in it where as you've described the film it, it's a thoughtful attempt to honorably address the native american captors or native american actors and, and civilization throughout society which for inexplicable reasons takes a detour to dodge city kansas for a comedic interlude where wyatt earp is played by jimmy stewart yeah i love two-thirds of this film and the third i don't love i really don't love and, and that mm. includes this this 20 minute intermission uh, it's kind of an atrocity <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Dang, you guys are both uh, last hurrahing all up the heck out of this sequence. Oh, the last hurrah is Citizen Kane compared to this <laughs> this fucking mess. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's just like that's it's hard to describe because like it wants like this is the epitome of Ford not judging the tone of his film correctly. He has the ability to go off the rails with comedic bits. And no more so than here. Right. It's like in The Searchers that we described how the, the comedy relief, comic relief didn't work. But here what he decided to do is instead of having bits of comic relief throughout, literally give us an uncut dose of alleged comic relief right in the middle, which absolutely undercuts everything around it. It's a full Troy Mitz. Now, now look, I... <laughs> the comedy dies worse than Liberty Valance. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. I love Jimmy Stewart, but this to me is the worst I've ever seen Jimmy Stewart when he's not talking to an invisible rabbit. <laughs> the, he is hamming it up as Wyatt Earp. Maybe if John Ford didn't punch Henry Fonda out back in Mr. Roberts, we could have had Henry Fonda playing Wyatt Earp uh, somewhat like uh, he did in My Darling Clementine. But instead, Jimmy Stewart is basically doing a bad Jimmy Stewart impersonation, (laughs) pretending not not to care what's going on as this pointless gunfight is about to break out in his gambling den and too worried about what's on his cards. It's all meant to be absolutely uproariously funny, and it's not. Uh, it just is a maybe as a corollary. One thing I can try to describe: imagine if you're watching Schindler's List, oh, and, wow. and in the middle of Schindler's List, all of a sudden there's a 20 minute comedic short film with David Spade in it, and that'd be oh, about wow. how well this that works That's in right. this film. He's saying life wow. is life is beautiful. Wow, <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. I mean, my my way of describing this scene would be. Um, imagine if you're watching like a British kitchen sink drama and then halfway through a Betty Hill skit uh, erupts because it gets as quote unquote wacky as a Betty Hill skit, right? Like, like, like gals get stripped to their pantaloons, um, uh, wagons get upended with bouncing funny noises as they, as they fall askew and, it's it gets zany to an extent that if they just had a um, a shot of a chimpanzee covering his eyes, I for one would not be a bit surprised. And again, the rest of the movie has none of this tone. The rest of the movie is the opposite of this tone, so it sticks out like a sore thumb. By the way, Ford's stuff has has his comic bits have had vaudeville level lowbrow humor to them, but Stewart is with his as you so aptly put it, bad John James Stewart impersonation. He's literally doing bad vaudeville. He's doing vaudeville badly. There's a moment in there where he is trying to blink his eyes. Just blink his eyes in amazement. And he does it so poorly, <laughs> I literally yelled at the screen, what are you trying to do to me, Stuart? Where's Liberty Valance's whip where you need it? Oh. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, there, there actually is a plot reason to go to Dodge City because uh, well, it, it's trying to continue on with the print the legend theme. In this case, the legend of how savage and brutal... Uh, the Cheyenne Indian tribe is, and so that the folks of Dodge City would go into a complete panic at the realization that the, 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 the that these savages are are coming their way. Now, had this been handled in any kind of consistent tone with the rest of the film, it could have added to it instead of becoming this this 
incredible distraction. Well, and what's a shame about it is in the buildup to that going to the Dodge City, there is a serious consideration of how the press is willing to exaggerate the amount of dead uh, attributed to the Indi the Cheyenne uprising. Mm -hmm. And that really is important. And that rings true even today, right? With all the exaggerations that happen on a daily basis. Yeah, right. Um, and it's it just another... It, 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 and, but yet you have that set up and it gets sold out for such a uh, just a disastrous comedy bit just hurts all the more. And the, I, the movie never recovered from it for me. Well, I like the fact that it ends on before the uh, quote unquote official intermission. And I totally agree with you guys that you should once you see him, try, uh, Stuart playing cards, you should go to the bathroom. It doesn't matter if you're watching a movie in the woods. That's, <laughs> that's the total bath. Never is a bathroom break when cry out for so urgently. <laughs> but after that, it concludes with the official intermission, which I think is an effective palate cleanser. And so can the movie recover from it? It did recover a lot of it for me because it got back to the same approximate level of seriousness. And I want to jump in and say I did like Widmark's character, even though when you look at what he says and what he does, he's clearly the John Wayne character. Mm -hmm. In so many Westerns, he is doing this, this larger-than-life kind of persona who is sort of at odds with what official what the official line is supposed to be. But Widmark has his own persona, which is obviously significantly different than Wayne's, but it's still just about as big. And he I think he's an effective other take on this kind of story. I I'd agree with that, but I, I also wanna kind of get back to what I think is, is the film's main strength beyond what it's saying is uh its visual look. Yeah. Because uh, now uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance was kind of an indoor western. He very purposefully didn't include a lot of the kind of majestic uh, scenery shots that we know he, he could do just about better than anyone. And there were reasons for that, but but as as being his last western, he gloriously indulges us with some of the most beautiful skies, mountains, and ranges, much of which is Monument Valley, but also uh, other areas of the West. And, and, and one thing that I, I that just never ceases to amaze me about Ford is how every time he does this, they it means something different and evokes a different feeling. And the outdoor scenes in Cheyenne Autumn, the time is taken. It's done very slowly paced but it but in a way that puts us in the shoes of this tribe who is starving and having to deal with survival issues and meanwhile what we're seeing in the background is just something your your mouth is agape it's just wow oh you're so right on that um there should be a clinic of just all the different ways Monument Valley is able to, has never has one setting been so effectively done to show, express so many different ways, so many different moods, and so many different sensibilities. Another alternate title of this movie kind of could be The Twilight of the Cheyenne, because this is like Monument Valley at its most stark in cinematography terms. Peas were constantly in shadow or have the sun shown out to their backs, so they're represented as silhouettes. And 
and they're tra- and you see their shadows cast longer and longer on the landscape as they as they trudge through and the canyons feel darker the light feels starcher and more bleached out you feel the weight of the harsh journey that these indians take and that comes from what he just puts from the play of lights and shadow and color on the movie screen i agree that his stuff is absolutely there, but can I say another thing that is, I think, inexplicable about the film is that at its climax, where we have a conversation finally between the semi-enlightened government official, the Secretary of Indian Affairs or something, meets with the Cheyenne tribe, it's inexplicably shot with rear projection, and it, as good as everything else yeah. looked, it looks atrocious. It's, it is the worst rear projection that's been seen since, like, not even the 1940s driving scenes are not as bad as this rear projection. You have to go back to Buster Keaton for a shot. My personal theory on it is that he just ran out of money. Yeah, that's sure what it looked like. Other things I've read about that sequence is uh, Edward G. Robinson, who uh, plays the interior secretary, couldn't get out uh, to locations, so all all scenes he was in had to be shot in studio. And then also that Ford himself was in ill health at this point, and somewhere during production he basically wasn't able to do the things he wanted to do. So, uh, I mean, you, you, you guys are absolutely right. It's, it, it is jarring when you watch this film and it goes from this gorgeous cinematography to these incredibly amateurish uh, rear projection stuff. It's, it, it's just bizarre, really. It's also notable, if maybe a little less bizarre, how this, of all the films of Fords that we've been talking about. This is the most cameo-heavy, where people are airdropped in and they do their one their one or two scenes. Um, we Obviously, we talked about uh, Jimmy Stewart's um, atrocity of, mm-hmm. a, of a Wyatt Earp uh, depiction, which actually helps out John Carradine quite a bit because he's his poker partner, and he is god-awful. He is playing and mugging in a way that reminds me of nothing so much as the old man villain in a Scooby-Doo episode. And there's a mystifying performance by Carl Malton doing a kind of bug-eyed method take of a German soldier who is conflicted upon his duties, as you can tell by his wailing and uh, hurling of bottles. Well, he, and is just following orders. Well, yes, it, it, constantly just following orders. What well, we get it? Yeah, it, it, you know that it could have been an interesting. I mean, these days you might call him—he's virtue signaling, right? He's like, oh, I can do all these things. I myself, if I were in control, would do all these yeah. things. But unfortunately, the orders have come down, and you know, I can't act the way I want to, yeah. sort of thing. Like I'm a good person, but I'm, you know, and it's—it's right. it's just something that doesn't—it rings false, and that—that's really a, a problem I have with a lot of this movie. Is you referred to them as cameos, but there are a lot of characters and actors that come and go and none of them really sunk in for me i didn't feel a lot of depth um i I just couldn't connect to this movie i I did think that although they ideally would have been portrayed by native americans ricardo montuban and gilbert roland as the two uh indian chiefs with the conflicting ideas about how to uh 
survive, basically. I, I thought they had uh, small but really effective roles. The same cannot be said for Salminio, who is involved in a subplot where uh, he is going after one of uh, Ricardo Montalban's character's wives in the middle of all this, and he's he kind of sticks out. So acting-wise, it's, it, it's like a little bit of this mixed bag. Some of the performances don't work, but, but for me, most of them do. Among them, I would include Edward G. Robinson, the notorious EGR, man. <laughs> Every time that guy can is in a performance, I've found, he just ele- he delivers it, no matter what he's asked to do. And here he com- does a gr- I find he does a great job of livening up what is a, could be a very stodgy, bureaucratic situation, which doesn't uh, allow for a lot of action, but he livens it up wonderfully, I think, in this picture. I also like the, the take on the Quakers and the idea of the lady joining the Indians on their trek mm-hmm. is really kind of fascinating. In it's a huge sacrifice on the one side, and secondly, it turns the formula of Debbie from the Searchers on its head for a lady who's willingly going to with this tribe on this journey. Right. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I, I think this film again touches on the way the army and the white folks act dishonestly and really only the Quakers act with any honor in this film. And I think that that's again, an example of the progressive intent of the film. Mm-hmm. That character is, is interesting. Uh, there is a romantic subplot angle with her, which doesn't really work very well, but the character herself is, is, is well-played. And a very nice scene involving a chalkboard and a bell. And I mm-hmm. thought it was a, interesting part of the would-be courtship. And I want to say the no, one other role, there's an actor who plays the a doctor who tries, who is in a camp where some of the Indians are get imprisoned, who has to take care of one of the younger um, Indian girls who has been injured. And this, and his, I, his persona was pretty cool. It was kind of an evocation of what Thomas Mitchell's character did from Stagecoach as a, as a as a sort of a drunken raper bait who finds a level of redemption, but in a, a little bit of a ironic indication of how s- sort of slapdash the second half of this movie is in a way that I found inadvertently hilarious is that he and some other people, much like the ragtag crew at um, The Sun Shines Bright, decide that they've had enough of how the Indians are mistreated, and so they decide to stage a mutiny against Carl Mullen's character. Right at the moment when the Indians decide to break out and kill a bunch of soldiers. So it's like, oh, dude, you took over at the wrong time, man. (laughs) So while I don't think things come together in a way that even the searchers managed to do for the most part, I did find a lot to like in Cheyenne Autumn myself. I think there's especially so much when he slows things down and looks at things from the vast scope of the the suffering of an entire group of people. I find that was that was really effective. It's when he does his sentiment in this one where he where he fails maybe the kind of worst way he's failed in his filmography so far. Well, I mean it's it's just something you don't see every day. You know, usually a film is either good or bad. 
but uh, here we have a film that is both good and bad. This, this film is like an EKG meter, yeah. <laughs> like up and down. You uh, need to see a doctor immediately. Yeah. No, but I, I, I don't know how many directors' last film, or this isn't his last one, but it's his last Western. Yeah, he had one more after this, but but as his last Western, this very much sums up his themes. Yeah, often at the end of their careers, you don't look at those films for most directors as being their strongest, and I don't think this is any exception. He get, some of his flaws are in evidence here, and I personally didn't find as much to like as you guys did, but if you have a spare two hours and 40 minutes, have at it. If you have a spare two hours and 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, and but, you have to credit him for putting it all out there. If he's going to make a Western this late in his career, he puts the stuff that's been so pa- he's been so passionate about through his films, the good and the bad out there on this big canvas for us. And Peter, we are very grateful that you brought however many hours it it took us to get through as much of John Ford's uh, career as we could. As we said at the beginning, it's a filmography of well over 100 films. We covered just a fraction, but hopefully we uh, gave folks an idea of why he's such a special director. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Like as I mentioned at the very start of this, I hadn't seen many Ford films prior to this, and this I can't imagine better way than to have done it uh, with you guys on the show. So thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for uh, joining us on on this trip. This exploration of Ford has proven to be just really fascinating for myself because there were so many different representations of how you see of the combinations of the things that the themes and the things that interest him. And we get to look at some both legendary films and some notable films for people to check out along the way. And so I'm very grateful that yeah, we were able to get together to get that to happen. And uh, we're grateful for you guys listening in and hope that you uh, got a level of enjoyment from hearing about all these different four films and what could be interesting, cool, or notable about them. If you have comments upon your Ford favorites or what you think of how we did in our Ford discussion, you can feel free to give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found on the net in multiple locations through iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, on Twitter under DC Podcast, and our episodes are available, which this will be the 150th, but they're all available online at our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Happy 150, guys. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. That'll be the day That'll be the day That'll be the day
today. 